I think there is something so special between the listener and the other side of the microphone in the studio. Very special. I don't feel I'm talking to two men now. I feel I'm talking to a whole world. All of the people that you have created for me because of what you're doing. I didn't want to go back. I wanted to go forward. I felt that the dialogue patterns of 74, that the recording techniques of 74, that the whole style of relationship between actor and spoken word is different in 74, and it is. Tuesday, January 8th, 1974. It's a cold night in Brooklyn, New York. There's snow in the forecast. We're driving north on Shore Road towards the Belt Parkway in a 1973 Ford Maverick. Thanks to the oil crisis, smaller cars like the Maverick are becoming increasingly popular. On January 2nd, President Nixon signed a law lowering the maximum speed limit on U.S. highways to 55 miles per hour. It conserved gasoline during the embargo. Highway fatalities dropped 23% over the next year. The limit remained in effect for 13 years. Unfortunately for Nixon, the Watergate scandal wouldn't go away. Citing executive privilege, on January 4th, Nixon refused to surrender over 500 subpoenaed tapes to the Watergate committee. On this night, Tuesday, January 8th, John Chancellor signed on with news and updates from NBC. This is NBC Nightly News, Tuesday, January 8th. Reported by John Chancellor with David Brinkley's journal. Good evening. Late today, the White House issued two white papers giving the president's side in the controversies involving contributions from dairymen and from the International Telephone and Telegraph Corporation. Those cases have been known as the Milk Fund, in which charges have been made that contributions from the dairymen resulted in an increase in the support price for dairy products. And the ITT case, in which charges have been made that the administration gave ITT preferential treatment in an antitrust matter in return for pledges of large contributions. The White House, white papers, say these charges are utterly false. The two white papers, one of them 17 pages long, were released just before this program went on the air. Tomorrow we'll have more details of the president's arguments in his defense. On this day, New York City instituted measures against gas shortage abuse. In this country, New York City has been one of the areas hardest hit by the gasoline shortage. Long lines of cars waiting for gas are commonplace. With the shortage have come abuses. Today, New York City imposed emergency measures aimed at stopping price gouging and preferential treatment for customers willing to pay for it. Robert Hager reports. Today, I'm 
I'm announcing two... At a news conference, city officials said gas stations would have to stop giving preferential treatment to regular customers. Anyone who drives up to the pumps must be treated equally, and clear signs must be posted if there is no gas or if sales are limited. Until now, gas stations did pretty much what they pleased. There was a no gas sign at this station in Queens today, but gas was being pumped. The attendant said he was selling up to $3 worth of gas to anyone. But the customer being served here got more than $7 worth. Another station had a no gas sign, but one car was sitting by the pumps, the driver obviously expecting to get gas. When the station manager saw us filming, the no gas sign came down. A few stations, such as this one in the Bronx, openly advertise the fact that they are limiting sales to regular customers. It's practices like this the city wants to stop, but the new regulations may run into legal problems. Agents of New York City's Department of Consumer Affairs plan to test the enforceability of their new regulations almost immediately. They'll head out Thursday morning to begin issuing citations to service stations in violation with threatened fines of up to $350 for each offense. Robert Hager, NBC News, New York. The day after this broadcast, representatives from the 12 member nations of the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries finished a meeting in Geneva, Switzerland. They voted for a three-month freeze on oil prices. The Iranian finance minister, Jamshid Amusgar, said today in Geneva that the oil exporting countries are willing to keep prices down if the oil importers will keep their profits down. In that connection, Amusgar noted that the increased strength of the American dollar abroad probably will result in a 6% drop in the cost to oil companies of foreign oil. At San Clemente, the White House said President Nixon is considering a Washington conference of oil-producing and consuming countries. The aim would be to develop a common policy on oil production and pricing. And in Washington, Vice President Ford warned of what might happen if the Arabs keep their oil policies of embargo and production cuts. Talk about retaliation against the Arab oil countries today brought a renewed threat by Saudi Arabia to blow up its own oil fields in the event of military intervention. And the Damascus State Radio said that all the Arab countries are prepared to follow suit if any military action is taken. But this isn't why we're here. As Mutual Broadcasting was getting back into radio drama with the Zero Hour, longtime director Hyman Brown finally convinced CBS to give him a nightly hour of time to produce new eerie radio plays. Tonight, we'll go back to January 1974 and study how this moment in time came to be. And now for the golden age of radio, Dick Bertel. Good evening. Our program is coming to you from New York tonight. We're in the uh, offices of one of the biggest producers of radio of the past and soon to be radio of the future. Ed Corcoran, our guest, is a giant in our industry. Yes, Dick, one of the most innovative producers of all time, and he gave us such shows as Inner Sanctum Mysteries, Grand Central Station, The Thin Man, Nero Wolf, and you could go on the rest of the half hour just uh, giving you all these shows, Dick, but here he is. Dick, shake hands with Hyman Brown. Hyman Brown, it's a pleasure to meet you and to welcome you to the golden age of radio. I'm happy to be a part of it and enjoy meeting both of you and talking about the most wonderful time of my life, the years I spent 
producing, creating, and directing radio drama. You know, I, I think perhaps this can be the most exciting interview we've conducted on the program because it's going to enable us to look ahead for the first time. We've been on the air for over three years and we've had to talk about the 30s and the 40s and the early 50s when radio disappeared from the scene. But now, radio, thanks to you and CBS, is coming back. And it's coming back in such form, with such virility, with such excitement, that I myself am almost overwhelmed by what it portends for the future. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 147. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we go into the studio with Hyman Brown for the CBS radio drama relaunch in 1974. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening song is harpist Elizabeth Hainan's beautiful rendition of Amid Flowers, Beside the River, Under a Spring Moon. It's a perfect dreamlike composition for tonight's trip back in time. You can hear this song on her album, Home, Works for Solo Harp. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com groups slash thewallbreakers. And the first eight chapters of Burning Gotham are out everywhere you can get a podcast and at burninggotham.com. It was a 2022 Tribeca Film Festival audio selection. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. The idea was one of many that I had in my heart and in my gut for the last five, six, eight years. And I've been trying with networks and with agencies to make them realize that radio drama is one of the most unique forms of entertainment in the world of theater, in the world of communication. And they somehow didn't respond to me. You must know from all that happens on your program and the responses you get Mm -hmm. that radio drama offers a listener something which they could not conceivably get in theater, in motion pictures, or in television. Your imagination, you, yourself, your fantasy, comes to the spoken word and you create a unique form of identification, a unique relationship to what's happening, and it enhances all. I call it color radio. You can do anything you want with your imagination once I lead you to the point of exercising that imagination. That was the voice of famed New York-based director Hyman Brown. In January 1974, he was 63 years old, having been on the air since the age of 18. It all began much before 1933 because in 1929, I was on the air Saturday mornings as part of a kind of almost high school, college stunt so that I could write something for the school paper. I was doing Jewish dialect things on NBC in the morning. 
I'd been on two weeks when I got a phone call from up in the Bronx, and a woman on the phone says, my name is Gertrude Berg, and I got a series called The Rise of Molly Goldberg. Could you come and meet with me? She said, I like the way you do Jewish dialect. I've got a story about a Jewish woman. You could be the salesman and the, um, play the part of Jake, maybe, the old man. I was all of some teenage. At any rate, she would be Molly and write the scripts. And sure enough, I sold it in 1929 to NBC, to Phillips Carlin. Brown is noted for having created Bulldog Drummond, Grand Central Station, Dick Tracy, and Inner Sanctum Mysteries. How many shows were you doing a week? I did as many as four and five shows a day. I did Terry and the Pirates and Dick Tracy back to back. And early in the day, I would do David Harum. And then I would do a half hour of Grand Central Station and so on. I would say that somewhere between 35 and 40,000 broadcasts passed through my hands. Lipton Tea and Lipton Soup present Inner Sanctum Mysteries. When I was doing Dick Tracy, for instance, we had a door that you simply couldn't use except once in a blue Sunday because it creaked. The door was just a bad door. We considered it. It creaked, and oh, whenever we found it in the control room or in the studio, I'd hit the ceiling. And then suddenly it dawned on me, maybe there's some very, very good things about something that's very, very bad. And that creak impressed itself on me, and I said, would you believe it, fellas? That creak's going to be the star of the show. And that's how the creaking door happened. And when I sold it to Carter's Little Liver Pills, I had been doing Grand Central Station. That was for Lambert Pharmaceutical. And the man who owned Carter's was very close to the Lambert Pharmaceutical people because they were both drug houses. And he called me one morning and he said, I play golf with whoever runs and owns Listerine. I would like a show like that. What have you got? So I came down with the creaking door and I came down with Bulldog Drummond and I came down with, I figured the first night of works, I would do dress rehearsal because after all, we'd be there the night before the show opened. (laughs) So he listened to all three shows, and he said, I like that mystery series, but I don't like the title, The Creaking Door. I said, what's wrong with The Creaking Door? I don't know. He said, did you have any other titles? Well, with a kind of tongue-in-cheek, I had no other title at that moment. They were down on Park Row, way, way downtown, and I'd gone down on the subway that morning, And in back of the New Yorker magazine, there was always a one-column ad for a group of detective stories published by Simon & Schuster called Inner Sanctum Detective Stories. So I said, how about Inner Sanctum? He said, that might be better. I didn't know what the relationship Then I first had to go to Simon & Schuster and make some kind of an arrangement with them to use the two or three words that belonged to them. But the creak was mine. I had created that. That's how the creaking door happened. Brown was itching for the chance to create new dramatic radio. The need to bring back radio drama was in me. Radio had become music and news and a service rather than an entertainment. Fortunately, Sam Diggs, who is the president of CBS Radio, 
and I, we were old friends, and we would kick this around at lunch once or twice every six or eight months. And then about a year or a year and a half ago, when I came to him with this idea of seven nights a week to create a habit once again, so that the station that carries the drama can truly say, we're the drama station. Stations, as you know today, radio stations, are programs. A station plays a particular kind of thing. It's either all news or all rock. Here we are, back with something where the station can say, we are the drama station. You've got to give them a reason for this. CBS executive Sam Diggs was 57 and close friends with Brown. But the CBS network board could perhaps have been a harder sell for a program that was to air every night of the week. I was invited to come down to Saramar Beach to address the CBS affiliate board. Now this is a group of 15 station owners, managers, who represent the 260 network stations. They make the decisions, they try to think for the others, and usually they set the pattern. I came in, they didn't expect me, and I spoke to these 15 hard, tough, cynical men who have to make a dollar and have to run a station that's number one in their market. And every single one of them, for the first time in the history of the affiliate board, said, we'll carry it. Well, with that as, as a stimulus, we then decided we would go out and try it on other people. We went to KMOX, we went to WCCO, and New York City, uh, CBS is all news. We went to WOR. Everybody said, we'll carry this. We then went to the advertising people and tried to, to make them understand that there is an audience out there. The numbers don't show it. And they responded. The name of the show is the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. Mystery is a flexible word. It's the macabre, the suspense, the eerie, the unexplained, the unseen. We'll do ESP kind of things, the occult stuff that deals with outer space, maybe some science fiction, but no detective stories. I don't want to get into, um, have to bog down into explanations and detective mysteries. I don't care if I don't explain to you the phenomena that we're dealing with. They're just tight, good mystery suspense stories. We broke the mold, literally. That's the only way to bring something back. We're going to be on the air seven nights a week with a 53-minute complete mystery drama each night. Seven nights a week. Never in the history of radio broadcasting did anybody attempt to do a series seven nights a week. CBS hadn't produced any dramatic shows since September of 1962. Over the 11 years since, Numerous technological advancements had been made. Well, first off, the whole production technique has changed. I'll be recording on equipment that didn't exist 20 years ago. I have a 16-channel console. I'll only use one or two channels, but I have 16 channels. The whole world of sound has changed. We can now put sound into cartridges. You don't have to spot a record. The cartridge hits the sound right on the button, the, the gunshot. We can make continuous loops now of street noises, of crowds, of backgrounds of all kinds, so that sound is better. All my music 
will be on cartridges. So I have no needle scratches. I have no surface noises to contend with. And then, of course, the whole world of tape recording changes. My actor, if he flubs a line, we stop, go back four speeches, and I edit it out afterwards. I don't like uh, the quality of the, uh, let's say, the, the railroad background. I add some more sounds to it when I re-record afterward. Even acting styles, the intensity of acting, the relationship of my actors one to the other, and the relationship of them to me as a director, that's changed in the last 20 years. Uh, the relationships of people in general has changed. Basically, we remain the same. I Love You is still as potent as it was 10,000 years ago. In order to produce a show that was to air every night of the week, a dedicated studio would be developed. They used Studio G on the sixth floor of the old CBS radio annex on East 52nd Street in New York. We're taking one of the large studios that is on 52nd Street that used to be part of the CBS radio setup. We're changing it around, putting in these sound effect consoles and cartridge machines that I've spoken of. The whole setup will be for me for 1974. Nobody else will use the studio. How could they? I've got to be in there to make seven shows a week. How about the writers? Are you going to go back to the old stable or are you going to develop new writers for this concept? Hi. Two things are going to happen. I definitely want to develop new writers. It's very, very important and very necessary. Right from your area, the O'Neill Workshop, George White, who is the president of the O'Neill Workshop, oh, has been sure. in to see me. Uh, we've spoken. He has some four, five hundred people there. I hope to set up a seminar on radio writing when they hold the workshop next May. He has given me a list of people who might be interested, and we will try to work with them. To get off the ground, I have fortunately been able to fall back on a group of wonderful, wonderful writers who are trained and experienced and have all been doing television and novels and movies and everything under the sun and theater, but are so happy for the opportunity to come back to radio writing. I have George Lothar, I have Henry Slazar, I have Sam Dan, Sidney Sloan, who for years wrote The Shadow, Murray Burnett, who for years did True Detective, and Marlena Dietrich. These are some of the people whom I've been able to revive, in a sense, with very little effort, to come back and write. The writers would be paid $350 per script. That's a little more than $2,000 today. As Hyman Brown mentioned, in New York City, CBS aired news, so Mutual Broadcasting's flagship WOR picked up the series just one month after Mutual began airing the Zero Hour. Acting talent would work for SAG-AFTRA scale. Actor E.G. Marshall was tabbed to be the host. In 1973, Marshall was known for his prominent role in the 1957 film 12 Angry Men and on TV's The Defenders. As a host, he harkened back to the golden age of radio when characters such as The Man in Black, The Whistler, The Mysterious Traveler, and Raymond hosted macabre programs. High Brown has always had the idea. High Brown was always sorry to see television take over. When was the proper time for it? Now, the proper time is now because it's being done, so I'm happy that it is being done now. I don't know what situation exists today for it that did not exist five years ago. I don't know, maybe sociologists can figure those things out when they're making these study of ethnographic populations and so forth. But I don't think the storytelling thing has ever left us. Every time you take your child to bed or you go someplace, I'm going to say, read us a story, read us a story. The CBS Radio Mystery Theater would debut on Sunday, January 6, 1974,
with Agnes Moorhead, starring in The Old Ones Are Hard to Kill. 218 stations carried the series, including 21, which were not CBS affiliates. And now, here's Act One of The Old Ones Are Hard to Kill. It begins with a stethoscope, a blood pressure reading, an electrocardiogram, and an altogether satisfying report on the health of Mrs. Ada Canby. Hmm. Well, can't see a thing to complain about, Ada. That little congestion you had last time is all cleared up. All in all, I'd say you're doing fine. For a woman my age, you mean. <laughs> <laughs> the older the chicken, the tougher it is to kill. <laughs> That's what my grandmother used to tell me, and she lived to be 98. Mm-hmm. Speaking of relatives, you uh, see much of Walter. My grandson? Oh, the usual once-a-year visit. And he always comes up with the same complaint. What's that? That I shouldn't be living all alone. That big house of yours must get pretty lonely sometimes. Well, the truth is, Dr. George, I'm not alone there. You're not? I decided to take in the border last month. Really? I haven't written Walter about it. I'm sure he'd object to my taking in a stranger, but there's really nothing wrong with Mr. Paulson, except his health, maybe. His health? What's wrong with him? Oh, the poor man's had a terrible cold for the past two weeks. Well, let me do a thing for him, though. Well, now, where did you meet this Mr. Paulson? He answered the ad I ran. He's just back from South America. Been living in Brazil for years. He's a very nice gentleman, really. He keeps himself and tends his birds. He has the loveliest blue parakeets. You can hear them chirping all over the house. Oh, it's the friendliest sound. Well, I, uh, I don't see anything wrong with what you're doing, Ada. Just make sure you don't go and catch the man's cold. Well, there's not much chance of that. The poor man hardly ever leaves his room. Well, how much do I owe you? I'll send you the bill. I'm sure you'll forget all about it. <laughs> Promise me you'll send it. Sure. Now, the one thing about radio, which is different than television, was that you had a certain anonymity, I believe is the word, where you could be on 10 shows a day and walk down Broadway in 42nd, and mm-hmm. nobody would recognize you. Did anybody ever recognize you because of your voice, yes. you know, in social? Any, uh, any? As a matter of fact, quite recently, I, I was amazed, shocked. I almost forgot what I was doing. I was placing a call and at a booth. I dialed the operator and asked for a number, and she said, yes, just one moment, Mr. Haynes. <laughs> no fool. I almost fell the wrong. <laughs> I would have been less surprised if she had said, Mr. Bergman. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently she was an old radio fan. Yeah, I guess so. But that amazed me. That really amazed me. A severe winter storm continued to pound Southern California today, um, but there was more rain in Los Angeles and additional snow in the surrounding mountains. The snow has stranded hundreds of tourists and campers since last Friday. Today, workers began rescuing some of them. The weather may clear tomorrow, but another storm is forecast for the weekend. The weather also affected President Nixon. He went for a drive in heavy rain, but was forced to turn back when a landslide blocked the road. The New York Daily News was unenthusiastic in its review of the first two episodes. However, the third episode caught their attention. On the evening of Tuesday, January 8, 1974, 
the CBS Radio Mystery Theater took to the air with their third installment called The Bullet, guest starring the just-heard radio, TV, and stage legend, Larry Haynes. Marshall. Welcome to the sound of suspense, to the fear you can hear. For the next 52 minutes, I shall be your guide on a journey over a strange terrain. Some people find their names printed in the most unusual places. Let me tell you about a man who is convinced that his was written on a bullet. Paul, get the password. It's me, Jerry. It's me. Don't shoot. Paul. Yes, Jerry, it's Paul. Paul. Paul, you're dead. How, how can you... Yes, Jerry, I'm dead. But I shouldn't be. I took your bullet. <laughs> mystery drama, The Bullet, was written especially for the Mystery Theater by Sam Dan and stars Larry Haynes. I shall be back shortly with Act One. Oh, good evening, Mystery Theater fans. <laughs> Nothing like a good, scary mystery to bring the roses to the cheeks. Bring the water to the eye and the fear to the marrow of the bones. <laughs> Hi, this is, uh, this is Gene Shepard, and of course, uh, for all of you Mystery Theater fans, I'm sure that you're all aware of the great new changes here on WOR, time changes and so on. And from now on, and by the way, I enjoy these Mystery Theater shows, they're great. From now on, I will be heard Monday through Friday at 9.15 p.m. 9.15. So you won't have any problem with the kids. They can, you know, the whole thing. So 9.15, and then after me comes John Wingate, dynamic John Wingate. And, of course, I follow Barry Farber. So 9.15 tonight, Gene Shepard, of course. While the lower speed limits may be slowing you down, Suburban Savings is setting your savings full speed ahead. For a limited time, Suburban Savings is going the limit and paying a top 7.9% effective annual yield on all new four-year 7.5% savings certificates. And Suburban guarantees it for four full years. In order to earn this annual effective yield, interest must remain on deposit for the full year. A $5,000 minimum is all you need to get your savings moving. Suburban compounds interest continuously from day of deposit paid quarterly. Early withdrawal prior to maturity is subject to a substantial penalty. Let your savings go the limit. Go to Suburban's convenient offices in Hackettstown, Sparta, Bayonne, Edgewater, Elmwood Park, Emerson, Morris Plains, Nutley, and Paramus.
a quiet little bar, Patty Noonan's. And Jerry Price stops there every evening on his way home from work. He's not looking for anything special in the way of atmosphere, adventure, companionship. And he has no intention of getting drunk. Just a couple of beers, perhaps, to bridge a busy day, to ease the fatigue, the strain on his nerves. In the comfortable half-light of Patty Noonan's, the world outside becomes vague, distant, especially when old man O'Rourke is holding forth. And he lay there, his head against the barricade, and the blood from him falling soft upon the pavement. I looked in his face, and I could see his death was upon him. "'Tis a bitter thing, I said, to die at seventeen. And for a moment his darkening eyes held mine. And with his last strength he said, "'Tis a sweet thing to die for Ireland." Sweet indeed, Mr. O'Rourke. Any calls for one on the house? I thank you, Paddy Noonan. Ah, I see, uh, Jerry Price. Excuse me. Good evening, Jerry. Hi. I didn't notice you come in. Well, when old man O'Rourke's in form, you don't see anybody, Paddy. The old man there, he carries his war. I know I carry mine. You ever think of yours, Jerry? No, no, never. Never? Don't. The day I came home from Vietnam, I put away the uniform. I also put away everything that went with it. The army, the war, like a snake sheds his skin. Now the past is gone, Patty. It's dead, so you forget it. You go on to other things. Hey, what's everybody drinking? This round's on me. Set him up, Patty. Mr. Edward Clark himself. <laughs> and what's the occasion? Hey, I got a little announcement. Guess what the old lady tells me this morning. <laughs> Number 10 is on its way. Oh, that event around must be on the house, Mr. Clark. Oh, just a quick one, Patty. Hey, I got the truck outside. What are you hoping for this time, Ed, boy or girl? Let's see. What do I got now? Hey, four boys and five... No. No, no, I, I got five boys and four... Ah, who can keep them straight? All I know is I'm always tripping over somebody. Yeah. Ten kids in 12 years. Well, you can't tell me it isn't exciting to hear there's going to be a new baby. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know it's going to be a kid who'll wet its pants and keep me up half the night. That's another mouth I got to feed. Yeah, well, guys, I got to ride. Huh? I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> you know, Patty, it's funny. People who don't want kids, can't stand kids, can't afford them, can't raise them, they can help getting kids. Whereas, oh, well, I <clears throat> guess there just isn't any justice in this world. Well, there may be no justice, Jerry, but there's always hope. How long have you been married? Oh, right after I got out of the Army, it'll be uh, nine years. A fellow used to come in here, and they were married 15 years before they had their first. Am I really out of the Army nine years? Tell me, Patty, you're an old philosopher. Where does it go, huh? Down the hatch and try another. Yeah, don't mind if I do. Oh, wait on a paying customer first. Where? The fellow standing at the end of the bar. What are you saying, Jerry? There's nobody standing at the end in the, of the... In the brown hat and a raincoat. Now, Jerry, what are you saying? I know. That, that's Paul. Tell me, what's the matter, Jerry? Paul. Jerry, listen to me. There's no Paul. Paul. Hey, he was just standing here. Where, where'd he go? Where is he? Jerry, where is who? Are you all right, Jerry? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm all right. 
But I saw him. Who? Oh, a uh, guy I was in the army with. Uh, the two of you, were you close? He was my buddy. Well, when was the last time you saw him in, in person? The night he was killed. Have you, have you ever seen him again? Like you thought you did just now? No. No, this is the first time. Well, maybe you need a rest, Jerry. Hattie, why now? Why tonight, after all these years? Well, you say you saw him last the night he died in battle. Well, the sight of him dead must have stayed with you always. But that's not how I just saw him, Patty. He wasn't in uniform. He was in civilian clothes. You might have pictured him as he looked at a happier time. I never saw him in civilian clothes. We met in the army. And, Patty, I... I didn't see him as he was then. We were both kids, about 20. I saw him the way he'd look today, about 30. His face was more mature. Jerry, are you sure he's dead? He is dead, Patty. I just saw him. I know I saw him. Jerry? It's after midnight. Oh, I'm uh, not finished, honey. I uh, have to clean up these reports, Marge. Honey, a new rule has just been passed in this house. All paperwork shall be done in the daytime. Marge, I have to call on customers. Be reasonable, huh? Am I the kind of wife who makes idle criticism? No, indeed. Constructive suggestions, that's my motto. Northeast distributors can solve all your paperwork problems by hiring a girl. Honey, I'm lucky to have the job. No, Jerry. You're not lucky. They're lucky. Well, everybody knows you're a terrific salesman. Well, you could get another job tomorrow. More money, less headache. Honey, I couldn't walk out on Joe Keller. Why not? Well, I'll never forget what that man did for me. I came home from the Army, a kid with no experience. I needed a job. He took a chance with me. Now he needs me. Oh. I'm, I'm just worried about you, Jerry. You look so tired all the time. No, I'm in great shape. Will you go see Doc Steiner? I did, today. Oh, well, it's about time. You needed a checkup. Well, I, uh... I didn't just go for the checkup, honey. I, uh... I went for the, uh, for the other thing. Oh, Jerry. Well, he said some people, men... Well, they're okay in every way, but it just... Doesn't work out for them. Jerry, it's all right. No, 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 honey. It's all my fault. Oh, and honey. It's... Well, it's just unlikely there can never be any kids. He said unlikely. What he meant was impossible. We've got each other? Yeah. If only you didn't want a child so badly. Now we'll definitely think about adopting. Okay? Yeah, okay. Sometimes that... Works out even better. Come on, honey, let, let me see you smile. <laughs> Marge, 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 I don't know what I'd do without you. <laughs> oh, that makes us even. I don't know what I'd do without you. Come on, get to bed. Yeah, I'll uh, just have a cigarette, huh? Well, honey, why'd you turn on the music? To make sure you don't try to sneak in some work. I know you can't concentrate with the music going. I'll just be a couple of minutes, honey. Halt! Let me 
Let's hear that password. Paul, is that you? Jerry. Hey, climb down the hole and make yourself at home. Man, I'm so beat, I can't even remember the password. That's all right. I don't even know what it is. Yeah, I got a cigarette? What'd they want back at the CP, Jerry? A patrol. You going? Yep. But you went out yesterday. Well, maybe I better write to my congressman, huh? I don't have any more cigarettes. Here, finish this one. Paul. Paul, I don't know if I can go out again. We're being relieved tomorrow. We were promised a rest. I just don't know if I can go out again. But you ain't going out, Jerry. Didn't you hear? I'm going. Oh, no, no. I'll say you and I made a trade. No, Paul. I can't let some other guy but do... But I'm not some other guy. I'm your buddy. What's the matter, Jerry? You never did it for me? Can I have a drag on that butt, Jerry? Paul. Paul, you're alive. I'm alive, Jerry. I'm here with you. In your living room. No, you can't be here. I went out afterward. I found your body. I carried it back. Maybe it wasn't you. It was me. But you were dead. You were killed. Yes, Jerry. I was killed. Jerry, will you turn that radio off and come to bed? March, he's here. Who's here? Can't you see him? Jerry, I don't see anyone. Paul, why can't she see you? She will. They all will. When? Later. I have to go now, Jerry. No, no, Paul. Paul, tell her. Jerry. She'll think I'm crazy, Paul. Paul. He's gone, Marge. He's gone. Jerry. Honey, what what's going on here? Marge, he, he, he was here. He was right oh. here. Now, you've got to believe that. I'm not drunk and I'm not crazy. I, 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 I believe you. I believe you, Jerry. Now, here, uh, j just sit down. Uh, don't do anything. Don't say anything. Can a doctor help what ails Jerry? In a moment, we'll return to Jerry and Marge and uh, Paul when we listen to Act Two. Larry Haynes had been involved with New York Radio for decades. The same month he was starring in this episode of the CBS Radio Mystery Theater, he spoke with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hi Brown, who used to do In a Sanctum, has revived radio or is trying to with a show called the uh, CBS Radio Mystery Theater, I guess it is. Which, in format, basically is like the old Inner Sanctum shows. It's more believable now and less ethereal than it was as Inner Sanctum. We're doing mystery shows. I've done two of them now. I think they should catch on. I think there is a market for radio drama. Is there any problem in adjusting to well, radio I, I, drama I, I, again? Well, I felt like I had never done a radio show in my <laughs> life because it had been 15 years, and I went in with great trepidation and said, my goodness, I'm going to have a script in my hand now. How will I handle it? <laughs> <laughs> but it all came back, and it was fun. Boy, I really enjoyed it, and so do all of us who were from the old days, you know, Jackson Beck and Ralph Bell, and it was like old class reunion. It's marvelous. Have techniques changed? I'm talking technically as well as perhaps acting styles. 
No, acting styles haven't changed. The technical end of broadcasting has changed a bit. Things are more electronic now than they were in the old days of radio. Most of your sound effects were done manually. And now they use cartridges. It's kind of a hard adjustment for us because we used to time our dialogue with the sound effects man, and that was helpful. Do you have a live manual yeah. sound effects man there as well? Oh, yeah. yeah. Things like opening and closing a door and footsteps. You Carpets uh, still haven't arrived, <laughs> have they? <laughs> That'd be awful. It always amazed me how little carpeting was used in the old yeah. days. Because everything was footsteps. Yeah, well, of course, yeah. it has to be. You've yeah. got to be able to well, paint a sound Well, that's the only picture. way you can convey movement from sure. one place to another. Sure. Are you going to go back to your gangster rules again now, Larry, or are you going to well, try to avoid uh, that? Well, <laughs> This format doesn't lend itself too much to gangsters as we well, know them. Well, you know, them. heavies, uh, let's say. No, they're not heavies. Most of the roles on, uh, if you're playing a lead, are sympathetic rather mm -hmm. than the villainous type. Also featured in this cast was Evelyn Juster, Martin Newman, Danny Ako, Leon Janney, and Ralph Bell. It was written by radio writing legend Sam Dan. I'm High Brown, producer of Radio Mystery Theater. And as you may imagine, I'm excited about this new adventure in modern radio, this new statement of radio's marvelous power to stir the imagination. Now, we're wondering about your reaction, about who you are and how you like what we're doing. So to encourage you to get in touch with us, we're holding a drawing for three weeks, 50 prizes a week, two AM-FM stereophonos, two travel clock radios, and 46 anthologies of modern suspense. Just mail us your name and address, and you're eligible. Of course, we'd like knowing whether your glad radio drama is back, but name and address will do it. To Mystery Theater, Box 50, Radio City Station, New York, 119. That's Box 50, Radio City Station, New York, 119. Offer good everywhere, unless locally prohibited. What's for dinner? Hey, Mom, what do you got? Hey, Mom, what's for dinner? Hey, Mom, what you got? Hey, Mom, you bought some yummies and a hungry little tummy can't wait anymore. Shop at Shop Right twice more. It's our favorite kind of store. They got good things to eat, they do. Hey, Mom, we sure love you. What's for dinner? How about a ShopRite USDA Choice Grade Beef Chuck Steak or roast smothered in fresh mushrooms? Snow White Mushrooms, just 79 cents a pound at your ShopRite Produce Department. This is WOR New York, your station for the Mystery Theater. And now, Act Two of the bullet. Let us trace the path of the bullet. We have a worried Marge, a concerned Dr. Steiner, and a distracted Jerry. Tell me about this man, uh, Paul, you called him Jerry. I said we were buddies, Doctor. That tells it all. Jerry, please don't be so hostile. Dr. Steiner's only trying to help. You were buddies. You came back alive and he didn't. Yeah. 
There's an extensive medical literature on the subject. Oh, I'm sure there is. Sherry. I'm not being hostile, Marge. I know I saw him. Of course you saw him. Well, finally. But that doesn't mean he was there. You see, Jerry, the death of a wartime comrade remains an eternal reproach. All who survive are sentenced forever to feelings of guilt. No, no, no. Doctor, the wars are fought by kids in foxholes. The literature is written by doctors and officers. That's hardly fair, Jerry. I'm the authority on war, Doctor, because I was a kid in a foxhole. And I don't feel guilty about... about my buddy. You don't? No. Tell me why. Oh, you wouldn't believe it. Try me. All right. You see, there's a bullet. And it's designed especially for you. And if it's your bullet, it'll find you no matter where you are. You can't evade it, you can't avoid it. It was meant for you, it was meant to be. You and the bullet. Both of you were dust originally. You were dust because the Bible says so. And the bullet was also just dust in the ground. Well, that bullet was mined and refined and cast into metal. It was shaped into a slug and joined with a shell. It was one of billions of bullets, but it was yours, all yours. And at the right time, at the right time, there'd be a tremendous explosion of gases in a narrow chamber, and a bullet would be torn loose from the shell case and spun around the grooves of a gun barrel and hurled through space. This is the bullet you don't hear. You don't hear it, Doctor. You don't hear it whine past your ear or ping off a rock or thwack against a tree. That's because it's your very own bullet. It's coming to meet you, or you're gonna meet it. It's been arranged, you see? It's an appointment that can never be broken. The dust that had become the bullet would encounter the dust that had become you. And after a while, after a while, both of you would become dust once again and, and return to the ground, your original home. Jerry, I know you're overworked, you're overwrought, you're overtired. I keep telling him to slow down. Okay, okay, I know I'm under a strain. I know I'm working too hard, but what can I do? Jerry, try to understand. Right now, you're having what is popularly known as a nervous breakdown. This alleged visitor from another world. I say he's an illusion. Oh. I say you have subconscious feelings about him which you're not aware of. And I say they burst through because of heavy pressure on your nervous system. Yeah, I knew you'd say that. Prove me wrong. How? Go away. Get out from under. Rest a while. Relax. <laughs> This looks like a good spot. You want to stop here and try for some fish? Well, Marge, uh, I think I'd like to go back and play nine holes this afternoon. Great. I need more practice with my irons. Uh, honey, honey, you know, uh, you, you've been getting a lot of sun. Maybe you better take it easy for a few hours, huh? And besides, you have an appointment with, uh, oh, what's that name? Uh, Biscayne Appliances. <laughs> See, Jerry? I wasn't sleeping when you called that number this morning. Now, Marge, I've been good all month. I was just getting restless, that's all. Look, they're a big chain down here. If I can open them up, I'll justify the trip. Justify? To whom? Why, why do you have to justify anything? Isn't your health important enough? Honey, Joe Keller was very nice about it. Joe Keller had no choice. Marge. Honey, Steiner was right. I was beat. I, I don't know how I managed to drag myself along. So I did, I did the right thing. I chucked it all. Now I'm fit, see? I, I never felt better in my life, and I'm raring to go. Great. 
In a month or two, we may think about going back. I'm, I'm not used to being idle, mm, honey. Neither am I. But I am learning to love it. <laughs> oh, boys. Why didn't I meet you when I was young? <laughs> young? Jerry, you weren't even 21. No, I was already made when we met. I had already become what I was going to be. You know, I've got a certain amount of ability. Mm, a tremendous amount, Jerry. But I'm not confident, honey. I doubt myself. I, I guess I didn't have very much encouragement when I was a kid. You know, my brother was a great athlete. My sister was a great beauty. I, I was kind of clumsy and funny looking. Anyway, Frank and Alice were sent to college. When my turn came, the money had run out. Or maybe they thought I wasn't worth the effort. That's why I enlisted when I was 18. I had to get away from the house and my father. There was no place else to go. You never told me this, honey. I decided if I ever had a kid, I'd never make jokes at his expense or tear him down in any way. I know how these things cut inside where it doesn't show. I would do everything to build him up and give him confidence. I, I will never, never have any real confidence, Marge. Oh, yes, you will. No, 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 baby. You won't get it from a pep talk. I think we can go back home now, Marge. Mm. All right, on one condition. You'll just have to slow down. Mm -hmm. I promise. And, honey, there's only one way you can really slow down. And that's to get a partnership from Joe Kelly. Now, Marge. Don't you deserve of it? Of course I do. Well, we're, we're going to adopt a child, which means I'll, I'll quit my job, and you're not going to spend time on the road. That kid will need both of us, won't he? Yes. Yes, honey, he will. Then we need that partnership, don't we? Jerry! Jerry, baby! <laughs> you look like a million bucks. That's 2% for cash, of course. Yeah, Joe. Oh, hold it, hold it. Ramona, no calls. I'm in a meeting. I can't be disturbed. Well, anyhow, Joe, hello. I want you to take it easy for a while, you hear? Yeah, I'm ready for action, Joe. Oh, you think you're ready. Now, listen. I know you had a lot of expenses. I want you to take this little check. It's only 500. I'm strapped for cash this week. I had to pop for a whole new computer setup. But anyway, I decided to increase your bonus to 5%. That'll amount to a pretty sweet raise, huh? Now, Joe... Don't, 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 don't thank me, kid. You're entitled to it. We've got to make sure you don't get sick again. Joe, I have to talk with you. Well, sure, kid. What about? Well, it's, uh, personal and important. Well, let me buy you lunch. Well, Jerry, what are we going to talk about? I'm fresh out of polite conversation. Joe... Joe, I want a partnership. No, you don't, Jerry. But, Joe... No, 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 don't interrupt. You don't want one. You'd like one. Two different things. Now, don't nitpick, Joe. You'd huh? like a partnership, which means it would be swell. Great if you had it. But want is something else. It means lack. It means need. I know you'd like to own a business, but you're not cut out to be an owner. Why? Because an owner is an officer. 
And in your heart, you'll always be an enlisted man. Tommy, could you ever fire a guy because you could get someone else cheaper? If an old customer, a good friend, was getting slow-paying bills, could you cut him off? Thousands of guys like you go bankrupt every year. You're nice, sweet, big-hearted. But you don't have the guts business needs. Well, I'd like to remind you of the volume I sell. I know it to the penny, Jerry, and you're well paid for it. Well, I'm worth more now. You are. You got a sweet raise this morning. Joe, Joe, don't, don't think I'm not grateful. You gave me my first break. But I think I can do better elsewhere. Where? Anywhere. Consolidated. Freeman and Singer. Should I go down the list? Oh, they'd love to have you, Jerry. What'll they pay? They handle the nationally advertised brands. What'll you be there, glorified order taker? They don't need your full selling ability, so they don't have to pay you full price for it. Sure, with me, you push out all the schlock. It's rough, but you get top dollar. There's 20 outfits like mine. They grab you tomorrow, but where's the improvement? They won't pay you more. At least here, you got nine years' equity in a pension plan. You and me are used to each other. Besides, I really like you. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like a father to you, Jerry. It was a fiasco, Patty, a fiasco. And how do I break it to March? Oh, what's it all about, Jerry? Well, at least I don't have to put up with Ed Clark tonight. I think I'd punch him right in the mouth. We'll be deprived of his wonderful company in the next two weeks. He's tooling that trailer into the southwest. Hello, Jerry. What? Patty. Patty, is someone standing behind me? No, Jerry. Paul, will you tell me why? I'll tell you everything, Jerry. When? Soon. I think maybe tonight. Paul, why do you keep popping in like this? I don't know, buddy. I can't control that. Yeah, but Paul. 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 Patty, don't you see anyone? No, Jerry. And you didn't hear anyone talking to me either? No. Patty, Patty, do you think I'm crazy? Well, maybe you should see a doctor. I saw a doctor. Well, how about one of them uh, psychiatrist fellas? I never even told my wife. I did see a psychiatrist. But after a while, I figured, why pay him 50 bucks an hour when I can come in here and talk to you for nothing? Well, there must be more to them fellas than that. Oh, sure. He said that the roots of my problem go back to my unhappy childhood. But, Patty, I have a brother, Frank, who feels terribly insecure. He goes to a psychiatrist, too. Why? He had a happy childhood. Well, put it this way. If you see someone, and I don't, the flaw can be in me and not in you. Drink? No, no. I better go home and face the music. Jerry? What? Paul? Let's go someplace and talk. Where? Let's go to the parking lot. Sit in your car. It's cold. That won't bother you, will it? Not yet. Turn the heater on for yourself. When will everyone else be able to see you, Paul? In two weeks. Oh, that's great. Now, 
It ain't. Why not? Because you'll be dead. Because you'll be dead. Cold words from a warm friend. The chill inside the car becomes intense. But Jerry knows there's no point in turning on the heater. We'll rejoin these two friends when I return shortly with Act Three. Time would prohibit you from doing anything else. As mm -hmm. I said earlier, you would do two, three, sometimes four shows a day, seven days a week, and that would take you into the early morning hours. I didn't do my first play on Broadway until, oh, well after I had been in radio for about 15 years. I want to ask you, was there one day, one moment when suddenly you you realize that perhaps all of this might be coming to an end as far as radio acting is concerned. And where were you? Were well, you uh, yeah, <laughs> watching sure. television in the bar somewhere? <laughs> well, no, we saw the handwriting on the wall. I never could quite believe that television would replace radio dramatically. Uh, I thought it was uh, well off into the future because of prohibitive costs of production, etc. I was always hopeful that radio drama would remain Unfortunately, we began to see the demise of radio. Shows were lopped off like a herd of cattle going to slaughter. It got down to like four shows being left, and all of them were soap operas. At the time, I was fortunate enough to have been involved in two of them, one of which was the second Mrs. Burton, and the other was Rosemary. And then Rosemary went, and the second Mrs. Burton was one of the last to go. So I made the transition from radio to television, fortunately, by going into the first daytime dramatic series called The First Hundred Years. That was the very first daytime show in television. And I did that for about a year, year and a half, and then went right from that into Search for Tomorrow, where I've been for almost 23 years. <laughs> in a real rut. But along with yeah. that, television, I find a lot more freedom to do other things, which I have done. And now we return to the final act of The Bullet and a reunion of two war buddies who haven't seen each other in almost nine years. Jerry Price, who is alive, and Paul Gardner, who is dead. The heater in this car doesn't do much good. You're shivering. Why am I going to be dead, Paul? Remember the night I went out on the patrol? Yeah, I'll remember that night as long as I lived. I completed my job. I was headed back. And then I felt something smash against my head. And I knew. I knew I just met the bullet. You know, the bullet we used to talk about? <laughs> I bet you don't remember. No, I remember. I remember. I felt it slam into me. And then... I didn't know anything anymore. Yeah, well, when the guys told me, I went out to get you, Paul. Yeah, I might have known you would. One minute, I was moving through a rice paddy. And the next minute, I'm, I'm sitting in an office. And I knew a lot of time had gone by. Don't, don't ask me how. I, I knew, that's all. A man was talking to me. What, uh, what kind of man? You know the type that's a clerk in the government or... A, Big corporation, fussy, self-important. Everything's got to be in the right place. He doesn't even look at me. He's got a piece of paper. He says, Paul Gardner, you're going back. 
You should not have died that night. The computation was for you to survive. The plan was for you to marry a girl named Marjorie Stone. I married Marjorie Stone? Yeah. I told the guy, I want no part of it. And he gives me a look, this clerk does, like he couldn't care less about me or you or anybody else. And he says, come with me. He leads me to a door. It opens. And all I can hear is a hum and a clicking. And all I can see is a computer. I mean, there's no end to the thing. That's all you can see is computer. And he says, there it is, friend. City Hall, go fight it. <laughs> By this time, I'm shaking. That machine scared the pants off me. You couldn't see the top nor the bottom of it. There was no end to it, just the machine, wherever the eye could see. Well, uh, then what happened? This clerk, he tells me there's a plan, a capital P plan. It calls for me to come home, not you. Yeah, well, maybe that's fair, Paul. You, you were always the better man. No, you got more on the ball. You never got a break, that's all. I had a chance to go to school, become somebody. I could have gone into the old man's business, become the biggest hardware dealer in Atlanta. You and me, we both run away to join the army. You because you had nothing, me because I had everything. But why are you coming back? Because Marge and I are supposed to have a boy, a certain kind of a boy. He'll grow up, I don't know, discover something, create something, or be somebody the world needs real bad. They wouldn't tell me what. Anyhow, 40, 50 years from now, he has to be here. And of all the millions of men and women, he could only be born to me and Marge. When, when uh, am I leaving? I told you, in two weeks. How? Nine o'clock at night. A trailer truck will go past Patty Noonan's saloon. Just as you're crossing the street. Well, why does it have to be like that? Because you don't know how careful these things are figured. You could get killed a million ways. But the plan calls for a truck driven by a guy named Ed Clark. Oh, yeah, I know Ed Clark. He doesn't have a good record, so it'll be easy to prove he's a careless driver. He works for a big outfit, so Marge will have a good settlement. But why? I still don't She'll understand. She'll need the money. You see, I won't be a good father. <laughs> Not as good as you, for sure. Oh, I'll love the kid. I'll love Marge, but I won't be there a lot. You know me. I have to keep moving. But if you know how important it is for the kid... I won't know. Once I'm alive, I won't remember any of this. And you say it's all figured out, maybe not. The human element. H how can the machine predict Marge would go for you, huh? <laughs> With all due respect, Jerry, did I ever have any trouble landing any dame I had my sights on? Well, with all due respect, I can't see Marge calling for your line of chatter. She will, Jerry. I'll be there when she's having a bad time. She'll be all alone. She'll need somebody. Things will take their natural course. Sure, she'll see through my line, but after a while, she'll get to like it. I'm different. You're quiet. I raise hell. You let things eat at your insides, not me. I pop off. Maybe my way's no better in the long run. 
and she's married to you, and she loves you. But deep in her heart, she loves my way better. She'll fall in love with me. Jerry, you have to believe I don't want to do this, but it was your bullet, not mine. Jerry? Hmm? What are you thinking about? Oh, a guy downstate wants to cancel a carload of refrigerators, so I'm uh, figuring an approach. Didn't we agree no more work at home? Yeah, well, honey, this is just uh, thinking. Did you talk to Joe Keller about the partnership? Yeah. And? He said no. Did you give him notice? No, he gave me a raise. Oh. Okay. Marge. Why don't you mix us a drink? Honey, aren't you going to say anything? Mm-hmm. Don't put in too much ice. Marge, please, you don't understand. I understand. I married a certain kind of man. And you're stuck with him? No. I'll stick by him. Because I love him. Would you have wanted a guy who'd barge into Joe Keller's office and say, Joe, either give me half the joint or I'll open up across the street and run you out of business? Oh, come on, Answer Jerry. me, Marge. I have to know. Well, maybe I did. Why didn't you marry him? He never showed up. So you settled for me. That's what's known as falling in love. Come on, honey, take me to the movies. No, no, I, I don't want to take you to the movies. Let's go downtown and see a play. But that's a lot of money. Are you going to worry about money? Now, and look, this weekend, would you like to fly out to, uh, say, Snow Valley and Snow. ski? Yeah, or how about Las Vegas, huh? <gasps> Jerry, what's gotten into you? Honey, we're going to have two weeks of the most fantastic why, fun. Why two weeks? Oh, what, what's so special? You. Me. I just want to spend the rest of my life having a ball with you. Well, hello, stranger. I haven't seen you. Why, it must be weeks. Where have you been? Oh, uh, giving Marge a good time. Well, I must say, it's done wonders for you. You look so calm. Do I? Do you ever see the little guy who wasn't there? Uh, no. Well, that's good. Let's drink to it. Uh, Jerry, if I'm not being forward, who did he want from you? You wouldn't believe it, Patty. Do you believe it? Well, I, uh, just dropped in to say hello, Patty, and goodbye. Jerry. Yeah? Something's the matter with you. Well, I, uh, I understand... Ed Clark is due back here tonight. I don't want to run into him. I just don't want to talk to him. Well, if that's how you feel, I'll buy him from the joint. Now, Jerry, something's wrong with you. No, 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 nothing, Pat. Now, look, I'm an old soldier, Jerry. I can tell. No, it's really nothing. Really, is it? No, Jerry, you got a look on your face. What kind of look? I've seen it before in the war. I've seen it on men who go out on the impossible mission. The look of men who know they're not coming back. The resigned look. What are you resigned to, Jerry? You have a vivid imagination. I have an imagination. Jerry, whatever it is, don't be resigned to it. Fight it. You can't fight City Hall. I knew it. You're in a fight, Jerry. Well, you can fight anybody. You're an ex-combat soldier, and you weren't afraid of anything. When you were out there, you faced up to death, hunger, despair. What happened to you, Jerry? Where did you lose it? Face up to it now. 
Whoever he is, spit in his eye. Patty, I can't do anything. Jerry, I'm going to throw you out of here for your own good. Now leave, leave town. Go far away for a while. Fight it, Jerry, fight it. Patty, Patty, wherever I go. Listen to old Patty, just take off. Don't you see there's a plan? Who cares? Put up a fight. Why are you so upset, Patty, huh? I don't know, but listen to me. Fight, now. Now get out of here. So, what was Larry Haynes doing with himself after radio drama died in the late 1950s? Well, I've done five or six hits on Broadway. The first one I did was A Thousand Clowns with Jason Robards and Sandy Dennis. Then I went into Promises, Promises, in which I played the doctor. Then I did a Generation with Henry Fonda, in which I played another doctor. <laughs> then I uh, most recently did Twigs with Seda Thompson. And I also replaced Jimmy Coco for two weeks in Last of the Red Hot Lovers. And in between all that, I did the movie version of The Odd Couple. So and I've kept busy. Were you working around the uh, Search for Tomorrow yeah. schedule? The yeah. show was live, I guess, yes. up until just well, a uh, few years ago. The only uh, involvement with the TV show, which was a contractual arrangement, was that they would write me out on uh, Wednesday matinees. So I would not... Uh, have to do search on a that's, that's rather interesting. How much flexibility do they tend to give you as an actor on one of these soap operas? Well, they give you a lot of flexibility if you give them enough time to adjust their story. Patty, it's Jerry. I decided to fight it. Good boy, Jerry. You know, Patty, there's something about your place. I don't know how to say it, but I feel stronger, better, away from it. Well, I don't mind. So I'm going to fight. What have I got to lose, huh? Why, why should I do what he tells me? Why should I believe him? I don't know what it is, but I agree. I'll see you around, Patty. Universal Airlines, flight number three for Los Angeles and Mexico City, now boarding at gate 17. Who are you calling, Jerry? Marge, I have to tell him. Oh. Jerry, don't do it this way. There'll be a hundred other people on that plane. Do it the way it has to be done. Paul, I have to fight you. Why? Because it isn't fair. Was it fair for me to stop your bullet? Come on, Jerry. Ed Clark will be tooling by Patty's in less than an hour. Paul, I, I don't know if I have the nerve. I'll help you, buddy. I'll help you. Come on. Hello? Hello? What is it, Mr. Noonan? I called you, and I hope it wasn't out of turn, Mrs. Price. It's about Jerry. What about Jerry? He's sitting back there in a booth. Now, wait. Don't go to him yet. He's in trouble. Well, it can't be. We, we've had such a glorious two weeks. He's in trouble. Well, what kind of trouble? I don't know. We have to help him somehow. Is it that buddy? I think so. Well, the time has come to lay that nonsense to rest once and for all, and I'm going to... That won't work. Agree with him. Show him anything he wants is okay with you. Don't fight him. All we can give him is love. Hi, honey. Hi. Buy me a drink? Oh, sure. You know, I, I never knew you had those little gold highlights in your hair. Oh, I'm using a different bottle this week. I love you. I love you, too. And I want you to be with me always. 
Come on, Jerry. Let's start. No, not yet. Are you talking to me? The plan calls for it. How do I know there is a plan? Ask anybody. Ask Marge. Jerry, what are you talking about? Marge. Marge, do you believe there's a plan that determines the actions of everybody in the whole world? No. You sure? I'm sure. Well, then how do you think things work out? Well, every which way. Come on, Jerry. It's time. No, no, I won't go. Where won't you go? Then, Marge, as far as you're concerned, there isn't any plan. Oh, well, well, I, well, what do you think, Jerry? No, that's not important. What do you think? Well, uh, yes. Yes, there is a plan. I can prove it. You can? Yes, but you started me thinking there has to be a plan. Otherwise, you and, and I, we just never would have met. Remember that day? Yeah, yeah. You, you were taking cash at Ryman's drugstore. That's the only reason I walked in there. Well, I'd already given notice I was going to leave. And then you walked in and asked Doc if you could open a charge. Then and there, I decided to stay. And where? Where were you going? Oh, away. Pull up stakes. Why? Well, my folks were gone. My friends were married. The neighborhood had changed. The girl I went to school with had a father, a construction engineer. He'd been transferred. Well, she took a job in his new office, and she wrote and said she found a nice crowd. They needed secretaries down there. She could fix it up. Well, why not? I was set to go. But it was not to be. You came wandering into Ryman's. Obviously, there's a master plan that rules our lives. And where? was this wonderful place you almost went to. Atlanta. Atlanta? Oh, what's so remarkable about that, Jerry? It, it was definite you were going. Well, sure. And only because I... Only because you met me. Only because I met you. Otherwise, I'd have gone to Atlanta and married a southern millionaire. But evidently, something had been planned for me. Aren't you flattered? I met you... And it changed my whole life. Are you ready to go now, Jerry? Marge, will you come with me? Yes, Jerry. Where do you want to go? Why, well, I, I have to do something. I'll come with you. No, no, wait here, darling, please. It's time, buddy. Just like going out on a patrol. Jerry, where are you going? That's all right, Patty. It's all right. I didn't want this, buddy. I know, I know. I don't want you to take my bullet either. Goodbye, Jerry. Yeah, goodbye, Paul. Take care of her for me, huh? You know I will. I've got her. We'll bring her into that bar where it's warm. Give her a little stimulant. It's all right. Everything will be all right. Everything will be... It'll be all right. So many people preface what they believe with, it is written. It is written in the stars. It is written on the wind. 
And for so many like Jerry, it is written on the bullet. I'll be back shortly. And now another tale of the ball and chain. At Kellogg's Special K presents... Presents Last Tango in Pittsburgh. There I was at Raoul's All Night Tango Lounge. My little orchid, will you tango with me? It was Raoul. You're a splendid dancer. But what was that? I was what? That sound effect. Oh, I'm a few pounds overweight, and this ball and chain points out how my extra weight can get in the way. I'm pointing you back to your chair. Our heroine decided to lose that extra weight. She exercised and ate smart at every meal, starting with a special K breakfast, a bowl of special K skim milk, tomato juice, and coffee. It's less than 240 calories, 99% fat-free, and 100% delicious. After a while, she was rid of the ball and chain and back at Raoul's. Darling, you're looking fantastic. What a happy ending. What ending? We're just getting started. Raoul, hmm? get lost. Your happy ending could begin with the Kellogg's Special K breakfast. And that's another tale of the fallen chain. Good evening, mystery theater fans. <laughs> There's nothing like a good, scary mystery to bring the roses to the cheeks. Bring the water to the eye and the fear to the marrow of the bones. <laughs> Hi, this is, uh, this is Gene Shepard, and of course, uh, for all of you mystery theater fans, I'm sure that you're all aware of the great new changes here on WOR, time changes and so on. And from now on, and by the way, I enjoy these mystery theater shows. They're great. From now on, I will be heard Monday through Friday at 9.15 p.m. 9.15. So you won't have any problem with the kids. They can, you know, the whole thing. So 9.15, and then after me comes John Wingate, dynamic John Wingate. And, of course, I follow Barry Farber. So 9.15 tonight, Gene Shepard, of course. soldier once told me he wasn't worried about the bullet that had his name on it. What really bothered him was the bullet marked to whom it may concern. Our concern is mystery, excitement, suspense, thrills and chills. Our cast included Larry Haynes, E.V. Juster, Martin Newman, Ralph Bell, Leon Janney, and Danny Ako. The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brown. Radio Mystery Theater was sponsored in part by Anheuser-Busch Incorporated, Brewers of Budweiser, and by the Kellogg Company, makers of Kellogg's Special K cereal. Now, a preview of our next tale. The only way to learn how to swim is to jump in the water, right? Well, that's what you need, Julia. I simply can't make you understand, can well, I? Well, maybe I can make you understand. Ah, forget it. You want to get that dinner ready? I'm hungry. Yes, yes, I'm going now. Uh, look, uh, why don't you change first? Change? Yeah, yeah, your clothes. Get more comfortable. Yes, I think I'd like to do that, George. I, I won't be long. Take it easy. That's my surprise. That's a teller. Get him out of 
This is E.G. Marshall inviting you to return to our mystery theater for another adventure in the macabre. Until next time, pleasant dreams. Right now, experience New York City like you've never before. The speculation is out of control. Yes, sir. The whole economy is going to collapse. Gentlemen, gentlemen. Will you make the right deal? Memories are short in New York. If you don't make a fortune, someone else will. I know you've been bringing rosemary into port illegally. I have eyes and ears and noses and... <laughs> Tongues everywhere. Or fall to greed. If I was caught with diamonds at any time, any time, my sister and I would have been gang raped and murdered. I do this for you. Well, look at what we got here, Bricktop. Looks like we caught as a dandy and a whore, all alone on South Street with nowhere to hide. Ain't that right, boys? But whatever you choose. There's a choice. You just always make the same choice, the one for yourself. Just make sure you get out in time. Lord, have mercy on us all. Out now on your favorite podcast app. Burning Gotham. The 2022 Tribeca Select audio soap opera. About the fastest growing city in the world. And the opportunists who shaped it. To find out more, go to burninggotham.com. I started in radio when I was about 15 years old. Mm -hmm. I was in New York City and I was a tremendous fan of shows like The Witch's Tale and The Silver Flute. These are probably shows that mm -hmm. you never even heard of, but they were major shows in those days and kid shows. And interestingly enough, actors who were on shows like The Witch's Tale and The Silver Flute remained radio actors and when I came back to New York and worked in radio, I worked with some of those actors, like John McGovern. And I, now some of the names escape me, but it was quite a thing. So I started, I was interested in doing radio from a very early age. I intended to be an actor in the theater, which I was, but like all actors, I had to earn a living. And beginning mm -hmm. acting is no way to earn a living. You can drive a cab, you can wait on table, but there was radio. And so I moved into radio in New York, 
and then remained with it for a long, long time, also doing theater and films and everything else. But radio was the backbone of what I did. And I loved, I loved doing radio. On Saturday, January 12, 1974, the Just Heard Mason Adams starred alongside Joan Loring, Tom Kena, Sam Gray, and Alan Manson in the seventh episode of the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. This air check comes from WOR, and it's a mystery in the truest sense of the word. First edition normally heard at this time can now be heard at 11.05 p.m. Saturday night. Stay tuned now for Mystery Theater. E.G. Marshall, welcome to the sound of suspense, to the fear you can hear. What do you think about witches? Not the bony hags and atrocious crones of Shakespeare and legend, or the poor unfortunates of Salem, but witches who are young, witches who are beautiful, witches who even fall in love. Excuse me. Who let you in here? Well, I hope I'm not disturbing you. I'm only trying to make a deadline. Well, if you're in the news business, I've got something for you. It better be good. I... I'm going to have to kill my wife. That won't be news till you do it. Well, I know. I want you to know why. Okay. Why? Because... She's a witch. Our mystery drama, I Warn You Three Times, was written especially for the Mystery Theater by Sam Dan and stars Joan Loring. It is sponsored in part by Anheuser-Busch Incorporated, Brewers of Budweiser. I'll be back shortly with Act One. I'm High Brown, producer of Radio Mystery Theater. Before we begin our story, a word. This enterprise is new in modern network radio. But for many who grew up with radio drama, it's the return of a special kind of magic, a vast and magic theater where nothing is impossible, where the listener's imagination is the real star. And now that we're on, we'd like to hear from you. So much so that if you send us your name and address, you're eligible for one of 50 prizes each week for three weeks two AM-FM stereophonos, two travel clock radios, and 46 anthologies of modern suspense. We'd like hearing how you feel about radio drama. But all you need do is send us your name and address to Mystery Theater, Box 50, Radio City Station, New York, 119. That's Box 50, Radio City Station, New York, 119. Offer good everywhere unless locally prohibited. While the lower speed limits may be slowing you down, Suburban Savings is setting your savings full speed ahead. 
For a limited time, Suburban Savings is going the limit and paying a top 7.9% effective annual yield on all new four-year 7.5% savings certificates. And Suburban guarantees it for four full years. In order to earn this annual effective yield, interest must remain on deposit for the full year. A $5,000 minimum is all you need to get your savings moving. Suburban compounds interest continuously from day of deposit paid quarterly. Early withdrawal prior to maturity is subject to a substantial penalty. Let your savings go the limit. Go to Suburban's convenient offices in Hackettstown, Sparta, Bayonne, Edgewater, Elmwood Park, Emerson, Morris Plains, Nutley, and Paramus. One of those miserable stormy nights in the dead of winter. A thick, clinging, wet snow seems determined to smother the entire earth and everyone on it. You'd think that most people would choose the cheerful indoors, a warming fire, a relaxing drink, a comfortable bed. That's the problem with most people. You can't figure them. For instance, Consider that line of cars crawling down Main Street, bumper to bumper, skidding, sliding. Where is everybody headed on a night like this? Have we become a race of lemmings? Do we follow some mysterious, unconscious drive? An interesting speculation, but we won't pursue it. We'd better consider the traffic, which has come to a complete standstill. A car seems to be stuck at the intersection. Let's go, sister. That light's green. Oh, officer. Well, what are you waiting for, lady? Uh, my, my husband. Your husband? That, um, the light was red, and he said he wanted to step out and clean off the rear window. Uh, hey, mister. You finished back there? He just stepped out. It was a moment ago. Tom? Well, maybe he slipped in the snow. Tom, are you all right? Lady, ain't nobody around the back. But... He just went out yeah, to, to yeah, clean the... Yeah, 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 to clean the rear window. Uh, that's what you said. But what could have happened uh, Just to... sit there a minute, lady. Hey, lay off of that horn. I know you got one. Now, what's wrong, officer? Did you see a guy get out of that car up Did there? I see a guy get yeah, out of yeah, the car? Yeah, 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 did you? Huh? Are the police after someone who escaped... Oh, come on, Buster, just tell me. Did you see a guy cleaning off the rear window of that car up front? Well, to tell you the truth, I wasn't paying any attention. I was listening to the radio. Now, there could have been somebody, but then again, I, I couldn't say there was. It's not that I'm not trying to get involved, yeah, officer. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a citizen. I know my duty, but... but yeah, yeah. Well, doesn't... thank you. Thank you. Officer, where is my husband? He was just there. Lady, he uh, disappeared. How could he disappear? I don't know. I do know he ain't here. What am I going to do? Well, you can't keep blocking traffic, lady. You got to move on. Where? Well, I... it beats me. But you must find him. Look, you got troubles with your husband. That's your problem. But when you hold up traffic, I... that's my problem. Will you feed her a little gas, please? Come on, let's go. Let's but go. But I can't. Lady, you got to go somewhere. I can't go anywhere. I don't know how to drive. Desk, Lieutenant Carroll. Yeah. Nobody wants this guy, you say? Well, technically, that isn't true. His wife wants him. Okay. Well, look who's here. Lieutenant, 
You won't win any Pulitzer Prizes around this joint tonight, Peterson. I was hoping you might have a little bone to throw me. Page one? I'll settle for two inches on the bottom of page 38. If you promise to remember two R's and one L. First name, Irvin, not Irving. Lieutenant Irvin Carroll. We may have something shaping up. Ah. I don't know where it can go. Everywhere or nowhere. What have I got to lose? Sitting over there on the first bench. Ooh, that's nice. And married. Well, you win, you lose. A very, very weird story. Tell me about it. No, let her tell you about it. Why don't you ask her? Excuse me. Oh. My name is Fred Peterson. I... I'm a reporter for the Union Messenger. Oh, no, I don't want to talk to a reporter. Why not? Because I... Because you're afraid? Why? Could you put Tom's picture in the paper? Well, that depends. Has Tom done anything? He's disappeared. Well, we'd need the how, the when, the where. The when, about an hour ago. Where? On Route 986 at Main Street. How? I don't know. You see, we were driving south. It was snowing hard, and he said, I can't see out the rear window. The light was red. He stepped outside to wipe it off. He didn't come back. Where, where did he go? I don't know. Well, where could he go? I don't know. In that snow? And, and there's nothing around there? Could, could you give me a why? I... I can't imagine. I, I don't know what to do. I sit here waiting. Look, my name is Hetty Parsons. Tom and I, we've been married five years. We don't have any problems. I mean, we're very happy. If you print his picture in the story, maybe someone will see it who can help us. Excuse me a minute. Well? Yeah, I think I'll run with it. I don't blame you. I was always partial to girls with honey-colored hair and baby blue eyes. Ah, so you noticed, too. Have you run a check on her husband, Tom Parsons? Well, he's not one of the known bad boys. No record at all. And what did she say he did? He's an accountant. He has his own business in the Barstow building. You looked him up in the phone book? Checks out. They were headed south, huh? That's what she says. If it was a trip, there should have been bags. There were. His and hers? His and hers. How does it look? What do you want from me? I don't solve crimes. I sit here behind the desk. Come on, Lieutenant. Now, this is one for you, Fred. How could a guy disappear just like that? And in that storm. Hmm. There's no place to go. He could have had a car following in back of them. A friend was driving it, maybe. Well, he had to go somewhere. But why? Right now, we're treating it as missing persons. It's all we can do. He's not wanted for anything. He's a legitimate citizen, as far as we know. He hasn't even done anything to her. At worst, he left her in a car. He hasn't even deserted her. Yet. Who was driving? He was. She can't. Well, that's abandoning her, isn't it? No. At best, we'd have him for abandoning the car. Yeah. Yeah, excuse me a minute. Listen, Mrs. Parsons. Yes. Why, why don't you go home? I've got my oh, car outside. Oh, no, no. I, I, I want to be here in case they find time. They'll let you know if they find him. No, I don't. I want to be home alone tonight. I, I just want to stay yeah, here. But it may be hours. It may be even days. Don't say that. I'm sorry. I, I'm just so jumpy and so nervous. I can't believe what's happened to me. Well, if you're going to sit here, you should have some coffee and a sandwich. Oh, I couldn't think of food. I'll be right back. <laughs> Mrs. 
Officer Dennis. Well, look who's here, the friendly reporter. Yeah, listen, that girl. Yeah, I was going to ask what girl, but yeah, I won't. Yeah, I, I, I want to start at the beginning. Oh, well, you know, Lieutenant Carroll's got two R's, but Patrolman Dennis got two N's. Yeah, 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 yeah. What did happen? Well, like she said, he went out to clean the rear window and he was gone. Anybody see him? Uh, I checked the car in back, but who looks? Who notices? Yeah, where could he have gone to around here? Well, on the south side, you got open fields. On this side, a couple of warehouse buildings locked up. Night watchman? Yeah, he's a retired cop. No sign of anybody trying to break in, to hide, or whatever he may have wanted to do. Okay, so what could have happened to the guy? Well, it's all very interesting, but in 15 minutes, I go off duty, and I won't have to worry about it. I think I could touch a thing, but I must have been starving. Has there been any word? Yeah, you'll hear the minute they know. Now, listen, Hetty, I can help you, but you have to help me. I'll do whatever I can. We have two basic roads to explore. One, somebody was out to get your husband. Oh, no. No. Tom is the mildest, sweetest, most obliging guy on earth. He has absolutely no enemies. That you know about Tom and I have no secrets from each other. Everybody has at least one enemy. Tom is incapable of hurting anyone in any way. He sounds too good to be true. If he does have a problem, that's it. All right. The second road to explore. He wasn't pushed, he jumped. What does that mean? It means he walked out on you. Oh, it's, it's, it's inconceivable. Why? I've had a liberal education tonight, Mr. Peterson. Call me Fred. No, not yet, or maybe never. I've been introduced to a new world. I've been thrown in with people who basically don't believe in anyone, don't trust anyone, and perhaps they have good cause. Perhaps that's how life is in their world. Perhaps their world is the real world, but it isn't my world. May I ask, do you come from another world? It's entirely possible. I won't call you Fred unless and until we become friends. But that's just a little thing. The policeman who brought me here is a confirmed cynic. So is the lieutenant. And so are you. I must plead guilty as charged. All of you propose two basic hypotheses. A, my husband was ambushed by enemies. B, my husband abandoned me. You can't conceive of people who... they simply don't make or have enemies. You can't conceive of people who are completely in love. I'm not a fool, Mr. Peterson. I read these attitudes. What a wonderful world you live in, Mrs. Parsons. I hope you can stay there always. We're so dependent on each other, Tom and I. We need each other. We're... We're so complete together. But we still have the basic fact of his disappearance. Yes, but all you can see are two alternatives. There is a third, you know. Really? Perhaps he was taken ill, suddenly, and he just wandered off. Oh, maybe I should go back now, there I've and... already been back there. There's no place he could have wandered off to. Tell me, does he have a history of any sort of illness, amnesia, oh, anything like that? No, nothing like that. Well, then, where are we? Nowhere. Perhaps you are nowhere, Mr. Peterson. Okay, tell me where you are. 
I have faith. I believe Tom will be found, or he will find himself, and he will have an absolutely reasonable and rational explanation. I hope so. Hetty! Oh! Hetty! Tom! Oh, Tom, darling. Tom, what happened to you? I was so scared. Oh, darling, you're all right. Hetty, are you all right? Yes. I don't understand. I happened to tune in the news, and there it was. Tom Parsons' accountant with offices in the Barstow building had disappeared under mysterious circumstances. Tom, I, I was so worried. Mr. Parsons was driving with his wife. He stepped out of the car to clean off the rear window, and... Hetty, what did you tell them? I wasn't in the car with you. I was at home. Well, here we have the story of two people who love each other deeply, who trust each other completely. It sounds like the Garden of Eden. But we all know what happened back there in the traffic and the snow. We shall return shortly with Act Two. When you say but, you've said a lot of things nobody else can say. Joan Loring, who voiced Hetty, was at the time of this broadcast 47 years old. She'd already been nominated for an Academy Award in The Corn is Green in 1945, and won a Donaldson, the predecessor of the Tony, in 1950 for her portrayal of Mary Buckholder in Come Back, Little Sheba. On radio, her career spanned the gamut. She starred as Judy Foster in the second season of A Date with Judy, played on suspense in the 1940s, in Theater 5 in the 1960s, and finally, on the CBS Radio Mystery Theater in the 1970s. Later this year, she appeared in Burt Lancaster's neo-noir film, The Midnight Man. You've said it all. Anheuser-Busch, St. Louis. WOR New York, your station for the Mystery Theater. What's for dinner? Hey, Mom, what do you got? Hey, Mom, what's for dinner? Hey, Mom, what you got? Hey, Mom, you bought some yummies and a hungry little tummy's can't wait anymore. Shop at Shop Right, why pay more? It's our favorite kind of store. They got good things to eat, they do. Hey, Mom, we sure love you. Stock up on your dinner needs during ShopRite's Can-Can sale. Great values throughout the store. ShopRite whole or cream-style corn, six one-pound cans for 89 cents. ShopRite fruit cocktail, three one-pound, one-ounce cans for 89 cents. You've seen these couples, or rather heard of them, they dwell in a sea of perfect harmony, never a ripple of discord. But when they do have a disagreement, well, it's a beaut. Here we have Fred Peterson listening to Hetty and Tom Parsons having a fantastic difference of opinion. Tom, 
Tom, how can you say that? Teddy, darling, I was not in the car with you. I was home. Home. You said, let's get out of this miserable cold and snow. Let's head south for a couple of weeks. Teddy, when did I say that? How could I say that? Uh, you know I'm swamped with work at the office. You came home this afternoon, Tom. You said, how would you like to leave for Florida tonight? And I said, give me an hour to pack. <clears throat> Excuse me. Who's he? Oh, he's just... A... I'm just Fred Peterson of the Union Messenger. A reporter? Oh, please, 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 don't be alarmed. I assure you it's a thoroughly respectable profession. Well, I... I see no point in... Well, emblazoning this all over the newspapers. Is there anything to emblazon, as you put it? This is a private affair. Tom, tell me what happened. What happened to you after you left me? Eddie, I told you I never left. Tom. How could I have left you? I wasn't with you. Oh, no, Tom. This time I have witnesses. The police officer, he knows you went out to clear the rear window. How does he know? Because he... Because he... you told him. Mr. Parsons, now, obviously your wife seems distraught. I would suggest... Keep your suggestions to yourself, Mr. Peterson. Don't you dare imply that I'm overwrought or nervous or hysterical. I am completely calm, extremely rational, and absolutely in command of myself. I know what happened this evening. Mr. Peterson, this is obviously a private matter between my wife and me and nobody's business but ours. What did you mean, Mrs. Parsons... When you said that this time you had witnesses, have there been other times when... Hetty, it doesn't do us any good to air this in public. All right, Tom. Take me home. Uh, let me talk to that officer at the desk there. Find out if there's anything we have to do. Well? Well what? Friend, husband, Tom. He didn't turn out to be quite as advertised. And what is that supposed to mean? He isn't quite the sweetest, mildest, most obliging guy on earth, is he? He is to me. I guess it's all a matter of how these words are defined, isn't it? And about this oh-so-complete understanding between the two of you. Won't you at least admit you're having a difference of opinion right now? I don't have to admit anything. Okay, okay, don't shoot. I'll go quietly. Are you sure you really want me to go? Please. Regardless of what you say to me, you are in trouble. No, I... no, don't deny it. Well, what if I am? I'd like to help you. Why? Because... Would because... you want to help me if I were middle-aged and fat and sloppy and ugly? It isn't ten minutes ago. You accused me of living in a world where no one trusted the next fellow or believed in him. You accused me of being a confirmed cynic. Is it possible you don't remember what you say from one minute to the next? I'm sorry. Don't be. There's a great deal to what you said. You're kind, but no one can help you. I could try. And no one should try, either. Why not? It's too dangerous. That was the wrong thing to say to me. I'm warning you. You're only getting me in deeper. Please, For Fred. For openers, my business is to take chances and get myself into... Hey, do you know what happened? What? You called me Fred. Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have. But you did. And that means we're friends. Look, I only want... You're wanted... the one who set up the ground rules for this thing. First names are for friends only. Please forget what happened here tonight. I warn you. You already warned me twice. It won't work. I can only warn you three times. Do you mean you keep score? Please don't joke, Fred. You keep saying the wrong word. Or I should say the wrong name. The wrong name is Fred. You can't call me Fred and expect me to forget everything. I warn you. I warn you for the third time. 
Forget all about tonight for your own sake, for your own safety. And after saying all that, you still expect me to forget about it? I... Tell my husband I'll wait for him outside in the car. Wait a minute, Hetty. I warned you, Fred. I warned you three times. Now, goodbye. Where's my wife? She said she'd meet you in the car. Uh, Mr. Peterson, if I were you, I'd forget everything that happened tonight. Is that a threat? No, a warning. That's all I've been getting around here, warnings. Well, for your own good, take them seriously. And if I don't? You'll regret it for the rest of your life which may not be a long one. You still insist that you're not threatening me? I'm only trying to help you. Really? And why should you do that? Why? I don't know why. Maybe it's because the last guy tried to help me. What last guy? I didn't listen to him. The last guy? What do you mean? Uh, nothing. Forget it. You know, with you and your wife, it seems, everything turns out to be nothing and forget I it. I don't think it matters now. I have an idea it's already too late for you. I'm sorry. Good night, Mr. Peterson. Hey, Fred. Fred. Yeah, Lieutenant, I'm coming. Well? Well, what? There's nothing there for us boys in blue. What's in it for the fourth estate? Looks like he's trying to drive her nuts. It could also be the other way around. I don't think so. Because of that honey-colored blonde oh, hair? Oh, Lieutenant, Lieutenant, you always know where the exposed nerve is. Just stop and figure it. Couldn't this also be her way of trying to drive him nuts? As a reporter, I would have to say yes. But, uh, as a man? I don't know. Well, you got a problem, Fred. How are you gonna tackle it? As a reporter? Or as a man? <laughs> How much rehearsal would you get for an evening show? How much time would it Depended on who was producing it. Mm -hmm. High Brown used to rehearse us. We would get in there, we'd read the script once, we'd get on the mic, and it would be timed and ready to go, and we would go. He moved very, very fast, mm -hmm. very economically. Other shows, you'd take hours to do. It all depended on who was running it. Of all the years that you spent in radio, was there an outstanding experience and what was the most satisfying or gratifying job It you was did? all fun. All of it was good. It was all fun. You know, I, once I, I addressed the National Association of Broadcasters, or one of those organizations, on what it was like to work in radio, and I got a joke from a friend. I started it by saying, in the words of that famous Dutch philosopher, Xaviera Hollander, she wrote a book called The Happy Hooker, it wasn't work. It was a pleasure. <laughs> and that's the way I've always felt about radio. That's wonderful. Good morning. Oh, Fred, what are you doing here? Won't you ask me to come in? Well, I... You could also offer me a cup of coffee. It's been a long drive on a cold morning. Oh, well... I suppose you might as well come inside. How gracious. I'm sorry. I'm... Uh, well, I'm, I'm still upset, and you should know why. Come into the kitchen. I was just pouring myself a cup. Thanks. Charming place you have here. Thank you. I suppose Tom is generous enough when it comes to money and things. The implication being that he is not generous when it comes to what? 
Fred, if you insist on talking about Tom, I'll have to ask you to leave. Okay, let's talk about you. No. We can't talk about me either. What can we talk about? The weather, politics, sports. You'd be surprised I'm a very well-informed person. We could talk about art or literature. I didn't come here to talk about those things. I know why you came here. Do you? Fred, I'm a married woman. But you're not a happily married woman. I'm happy enough. Okay. Let me tell you why I'm here. As a reporter, that is. It doesn't happen very often that you get a chance to be in on a story before it's a story. You follow me? No. Last night, all I could have gotten out of it might have been a squib on the back page, or maybe nothing. But something's happening here. Something's building. I don't know what it is. But one of you is lying. One of you is trying to destroy the other. And you think you can stop it? Oh, no, that's not my job. But there's going to be an explosion. And I want to be there when it blows. Because then I'll have a story. And that's all this is. That's all I am to you. A story. I was talking as a reporter. But as a man... Yes? As a man, I'd... I'd like to help you, Hetty. Even if it meant losing your story? Yes. I'd like to believe that. Why can't you? I tried to warn you, Fred. Look, we had all that last night. I can't warn you anymore, but remember, I did warn yeah, you. Yeah, sure. Don't brush it aside, Fred. Hetty, on the general subject of warnings, I've had a few in my day, from gangsters, from politicians. I mean from people who had clout. But I did warn you. Look, if you want me to, I'll sign a receipt. Let the record show that you warned me. You were right. He is trying to destroy me. Ah, finally. Why? I don't know. Okay, let's go through the standards. Is he after your money? I don't have any. Another woman? I don't think so. Is he tired of you? I don't know. Well... None of this is very helpful. I'm sorry. What was this business you were giving me back in the station house about your perfect marriage, about your perfect husband? Because he is. It's just... Well, now and then he, he imagines things like last night. What's now and then? Oh, every few months. One time he stranded me up in Maine. Another time we were supposed to go to Europe. He told me he would be delayed and to get on the plane he would make the next one. And there I was. All by myself in Paris. He denied everything. Has he seen a doctor? Yes. And? It hasn't done any good. Is he overworked? Oh, yes. Well, maybe he needs a long vacation. I'm sure of it. It all sounds pretty simple to me. Except for one little item. Why have you insisted on warning me? Because it was the right thing to do. I don't understand. First, you imply that everything is so simple. Then when I start to believe it, you drop a little suggestion that throws me off balance. I, I can't seem to get anything definite out of you. Oh, but you did. What was that? A warning. Lieutenant Carroll. Hey, Lieutenant. Hey, how goes the Parson case? How did you know I was going to ask you about the Parson? That honey blonde hair. Does it really show that much? Pal, you are hooked. You know, Sammy, that's true. And she may even be playing me like a fish. So what can I do for you? Well, no crime has been committed yet, 
But you can bet there's one on the way. Well, till then, we're handcuffed around here. Sure, but you got all the facts. What facts? I mean, I mean, you can get at them in a routine way. Work up both of them, some past histories. That's spending the taxpayers' money. You spend the taxpayers' money every day. Something's ready to blow up there. Just be ready for it. That's all I'm asking. Actually, Fred, if you want the truth, we've already started. And? Keep in touch. Yeah? They said you're in this office. Well, look who's here. Tom, Tom, the Piper's son. Come on in, sit down. Mr. Peterson, I've decided to tell you everything. Because... Because I know you're in love with my wife. Oh, wait a minute. Now, there are all kinds of meaningless expressions. Wait a minute, see here, hold on, or if you... Let's dispense with them. You can't accuse me. I don't accuse you. I state a fact. Well, then let's, let's be fair. I only met your wife last night. I, I admit she's attractive. I don't even know her. <laughs> That's what I told him. That's what you told who? The last guy. The last guy she was married to. I wish I knew how to start this. Well, start at the beginning. Okay. I'm an accountant. You're a reporter. Both of us are men of the world. I mean, this world. You live on facts. I live on figures. So how can I tell you? How can I expect you to believe me when I say that Hetty isn't a human being at all? She isn't? No. She's a witch. A witch. Yes, that's what he said. A witch. But how can it be? Wasn't all that witch business over and done with more than 200 years ago? Well, that's what we intend to find out shortly when I return with Act Three. I just entered radio mm -hmm. in the very early 40s, and mm -hmm. by then, maybe Lights Out was still on, but I, I'd never worked with Arch Obler, for instance, mm -hmm. unhappily. I was, I just missed working with Orson Welles, unfortunately. They were, that was toward the end of the, uh, the 30s that they were really active. But I did work on, I worked on Grand Central Station, on Inner Sanctum, on Thin Man, all of the, all of the shows that came out of New York, I, I generally worked on one way or another. <clears throat> At the end of the 50s, into the early 60s, it was clear that radio was disappearing, television was taking over. And one had to f decide how one was going to subsist. A lot of my colleagues moved to California to try to break into movies. I didn't want to leave. And I looked at this field of commercials. I knew that, you know, I had certain techniques that might be useful, and I moved into it, and that's how it was. So that became the substitute for radio. I earned a living doing commercials, but at the same time I was an actor and was able to do my work as an actor. So it worked out very well. In the more or less the revival of radio, you worked with High Brown. And well, I, I worked in, with High Brown right from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. One of the first shows I did was Joyce Jordan, M.D., Mm -hmm. High Brown produced that. So I was with him, and then, of course, he stayed. And he's still going, you yes. know, mm -hmm. and trying to revive radio. He's extraordinary. He I, keeps I, going I, with he, it. That's he right. sure does, yeah. yeah. W.O.R. New York, your station for the Mystery Theater. 
Good evening, mystery fans. This is Sherry Henry. And do I have some afternoons in store for you next week. Carol Channing and Anita Luce are going to be with me on Monday talking about Lorelei and those fabulous diamonds coming back to town in the form of a new musical. Then on Tuesday, a discussion of the current gasoline shortage here in town. And on Wednesday, we'll begin a special three-day series on divorce. The grounds, the proceedings, the costs, and the miseries. And we'll concentrate on ways some sanity can be brought into that difficult period when men and women begin to remake their lives. I hope you'll begin to remake your listening schedule to include the Sherry Henry program. It's every weekday afternoon at 2.15 on WOR Radio. Tom Parsons and Fred Peterson sit in a newspaper office. Both are young, alert, stylishly dressed, every bit the modern, sophisticated men of today. And yet, the subject, the very serious subject under discussion is witchcraft, of all things. Well, it isn't every day a man accuses his wife of being a witch. It isn't every day a man finds out he's married to one. I can only say it's incredible. I know. That's what I said when he told me. When who told you? The last guy. Tell me about the last guy. I met Hetty on a cruise ship about five years ago. She said her husband had just somehow disappeared. She was distraught. <laughs> you know, she does the distraught bit to perfection. I know nothing of the kind. What happened? Had he, had he fallen overboard? Well, that's... That's what she made everybody think. Till we got a radiogram from shore. He claimed he knew nothing about the trip. Well, either he had boarded the boat or he hadn't. Okay, let's get all of that cleared away. There was a ticket in his name. There were some people who claimed they had seen him. The trouble is, there was a pretty drunk bon voyage party. Most everybody was in no shape to remember anything. Oh, yes, yes, a steward did claim to have seen him aboard, but... But? I'm convinced the steward was bribed. So I bought her story. I fell in love with her. Just as you did. And I helped her kill him. Just as you're going to help her kill me. You know what I think? I know what you think. You think I'm a nut. You could look it up. Five years ago, Stacy's Mountainville Lodge in the Adirondacks. She called me. She was desperate. Come up here. He's going to kill me. I flew up. I found them. They were near a cliff. She was screaming for help. I started fighting him off. I, I guess he slipped. He, he fell over the side. He was killed. Look it up. Coroner's office. You'll see. An accident. Let's assume I buy all this. How does it make her a witch? Oh, she told me. She'll tell you afterwards. She's a witch. She falls in love with men, gets tired of them, and destroys them. I think you must I know. be... I know. I'm here to warn you. But I'm going to kill her first. Let me get you a cup of coffee. You're a fool. 
I'm here to save your life. Sure, sure. Okay. Look her up. I mean that. See if you can find a trace of her. See if you can find out where or when she was born, who her parents were. She has absolutely no background. I tell yeah, you... Don't, 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 don't get excited. Lord, this is all so familiar. All of this is what he said to me and what I said to him back there before I killed him. Now, nobody's going to kill anybody. I don't know you. But you look like a nice guy. Take my advice. Save yourself. Save yourself. I'm not sure I should be here with you tonight, Fred. Well, you wouldn't let me visit you at home. Oh, it just wouldn't look right. Yeah, but it's all on the level. I'm a newspaper man. It's business. I'm doing a story. I had a very proper upbringing. Where were you raised, Hetty? I'd rather not talk about it. Why? Well, I told you it was proper, but it wasn't happy. I shouldn't say this, but there were times when I thought my parents were ogres. <coughs> Fred, is something wrong? No, 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 no. Gee, I, I just hope I, I, I didn't spill anything on you. No. I didn't have a happy childhood. I, I don't like to discuss it. Here's something we should discuss. I spoke with Tom this morning. I think I know what he told you. So far out, I even hesitate to mention it, but obviously he believes it. I insisted that he see a psychiatrist. In fact, we both went. And it's the doctor's opinion that Tom is riddled with guilt. You see, he thinks he murdered Larry. Larry? My first husband. But Larry was a brute. I was very young and... were really too young to know anything about people. Larry was a drunk. I didn't know that either. And when he had a few, he would abuse me. Well, I shouldn't have done it, but I was terrified. I called Tom and he came up and got into a fight with Larry and... Well, there was that accident. But why should he get that far-out notion about you? According to the doctor, it had to be something... Well, something he could live with, something that could justify what he did. And he really has a vivid imagination. He strikes me as a very sober-minded person, aside He was from... a lit major at college. He became an accountant because he had to make a living. I... I don't know what I'm going to do about him, Fred. I've had so much trouble in my life, and he's really a wonderful guy, and I love him. Why does he want to destroy us? Why should he have a guilty conscience about Larry? Whatever happened was in self-defense. Well, look, everything will turn out all right. Oh, you're only saying that because you have to say something. No, I believe it. Hello? I... Tom? Yes, it's Tom. But you said you were working late. Well, I am. I just took a break for dinner. Join you? Please. Fred, you obviously didn't hear a word I said this morning, did you? I heard every word. Heard them all and listened to none? Tom, you're not well, and I think we Oh, I know what you think. You think we should go away for a rest and all that. Forget it. I know what I have to do, and I'm going to do it. <laughs> Poor Fred. I feel sorry for you. You're in love with her. 
To keep the record straight, I'm a reporter. There's a story here. I aim to get it. Sure, sure. That's what you tell yourself. Let's go along with you, Tom. Suppose what you say is true. Suppose she's what you say she is. Why not walk out, get a divorce? I can't. Why? I hope you never find out. You see, she destroys you. She takes away your capacity to love, your feelings, your mind. It's as if you're only just nourishment for her. And when everything you have to give is gone, she discards you for someone else. Tom, for your own sake, I think you should be under a doctor's care in a hospital. I suppose I should. But I want to save you. It'll make up for Larry. I must apologize, Fred, for exposing you to all this. I shouldn't have come here. But you wanted to expose him to all this. That's why you came here. You knew I always eat here when I work late. Tom, I'll do anything you want. Just tell me. <laughs> Disappear. As a supernatural person, you can arrange that without any problems. Please, Fred, go now. Leave us alone. But I don't want to... He's my problem. I have to live with him. And if you stay, well... An audience always excites him. Ah, now look who finally showed up. What happened to that Nobel Prize for Journalism you were working on? Tenet, there is no Nobel Prize for Journalism. Oh, well, what happened anyhow? I got off it all. Couldn't make heads or tails. Well, we're still on it. As a matter of fact, information keeps pouring in all the time. On her? On him. Funny duck. He was always interested in spirits, that kind of thing. He wrote his master's thesis on something called uh, demonology. Well, there's nothing there for me. As a man or a reporter? Both. You know, I've been married 10 years, and I've never been tempted. But if I could be, she could do it. Oh, that dame or something. I'm surprised at you, Lieutenant. But there's hope for you. If what you say about the husband is true, he winds up uh, in the loony bin, and after a respectable interval, she could be yours. That's what's in your mind, right? You are the most cynical person I know. Come off it. We're two of a kind. I'd even wait for her myself. <laughs> Lieutenant Carroll. Is uh, Fred Peterson there, please? Hold on, I'll see. It's uh, the girl you love. Cut it out. Okay, the girl we love. You here? Yeah. Yeah, I guess I'm here. Take it. Hello? Fred, I'm scared. What's the matter, Hetty? Don't ask any questions. Just come to my place. Quickly. Come in, Fred. Oh, darling, I'm so glad you're here. Hetty, Hetty, why are you shaking like that? I'm frightened. I'm so frightened. Please, please, Hetty, calm down. I'm here. Everything is going to be all right. I know it. I know. It's wrong for me to talk to you like this, to feel like this. But I, I can't help no, it. No, no, we'll work it out. Somehow we'll work it out. I, now, 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 why are you scared? I, he asked me to take his suit to the cleaners this morning, and I... Found this in his pocket. It's a receipt. Read it. From Carrington's one double action Danforth Wilson revolver, caliber 32. He bought a gun. 
Don't you see he bought a gun? All right. Why would he buy a gun if he didn't want to kill me? Well, I think we have enough to interest the police now. Are you sure about that? Tom! Well, answer the question, Fred. What do you expect from the police? I have a permit for this gun. I have every right to own it. Now look, Tom, I get very nervous when people point guns at me. Maybe it's unreasonable, but do you, do you mind putting that, that thing away? Well, I will. After I use it. No, Tom. Don't be a fool. You're not a killer. I always thought that. Till just now. Tom, listen. Let's say you're right. That she is a witch, okay? Don't you see? You couldn't kill her anyhow. You'd empty the gun at her. It wouldn't mean a thing. Fine. Why don't we find out? I won't no. let you. Get away from me, Fred. No. Come on, step aside. Oh, behind me, Eddie. Behind me. Fred, give, give me, me that gun. gun. If you move, I'll kill you, too. Just lower it. Drop it. Take it. Oh. No, oh. I'm going to kill her. No, drop it, drop it. Tom. Tom. You did it. Again, Eddie. You did it. Again. Call a doctor, Eddie. Oh. What for? Oh, you poor sucker. You think she... Oh, she's not worth it. Uh. You think she's paradise? <laughs> she is. Ah, uh, she is. But it doesn't last. Oh. It doesn't last. Oh. And then she'll kill you. She'll kill you too. Uh, he's... He's dead. Uh, you saw, you saw there was nothing I, I could do. I know. I know. Better call the police. Uh, uh, Lieutenant Carroll. Lieutenant, it's Fred. Hey, Fred, I got news for you. What I mean is I have absolutely no news for you. Lieutenant, listen to me. You know, we, we drew a complete blank on that dame. We trace her back to St. Louis City Hall, where she married a guy named Larry Bellows. She gave her home address as Charterville, Illinois. But there's no such place. Listen, Lieutenant. It's as if this dame just materialized out of thin air. No background at all. Wait a minute. Hetty. Who are you? Hello. Oh, Fred. Fred, why did you call? Who are you, Hetty? Fred, what's on your mind? Hetty. I warned you three times, Fred. I warned you three times. And how many warnings would you have needed? Or heeded? That's the trouble. When they have honey blonde hair, it's so hard to take them seriously. A mistake. You should always take every woman seriously. Are there really witches? Everyone must keep his own counsel on the matter. However, if you should happen upon a damsel in distress, 
and she has honey blonde hair and baby blue eyes. Remember, we warned you three times. Our cast included Joan Loring, Mason Adams, Tom Kena, Alan Manson, and Sam Gray. The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brown. Now, a preview of our next tale. Look at me, Mama. Listen to me call you that, Mama. A grown man, 38 years old, tied to his mother's apron strings like, like some sniveling little boy. Father's life wasn't his own either. You killed him. You... You are mad. Keep away. Keep away. You want to kill me. I'm not going to kill you, Mama. You know I haven't got the strength of will for that. Oh, oh, of course you won't, son. But you can have anything you want now we've had this little talk. Now, now please get Hannah like a good boy. Oh, no, Mama. I don't need you anymore. You left me everything in your will. But I'm not dead. To all the world except me, you are. This is E.G. Marshall inviting you to return to our mystery theater for another adventure in the macabre. Until next time, pleasant dreams. Preceding Mystery Theater program was furnished by the CBS Radio Network. All the late news next from the WOR Newsroom and the mid-January weather forecast. And then Joe Franklin takes over. Make your life more meaningful. Share your interests and enthusiasms. Join one of the social, recreational, educational, or hobby groups at Marble Collegiate Church, 5th Avenue and 29th Street in Manhattan. And hear the Mystery Theater tomorrow at 5.05, right after the 5 o'clock news, here on WOR New York, an RKO General Station. Good evening. Here's the news at 9 from the WOR Newsroom. Bill Maher reporting. Special Watergate prosecutor Leon Jaworski met with reporters today and came on tougher than his predecessor, Archibald Cox. Jaworski said he will present any incriminating evidence about President Nixon to the federal Watergate grand jury without waiting for a final ruling on whether it is possible to indict an in-office president, said the prosecutor. If I came across something involving the president, I would feel an obligation to present it to the grand jury. Jaworski revealed that he has recently gotten a new batch of what he called significant evidence from the White House, and he said... He has hopes to be ready to seek indictments in the case by the end of February. 
grumblings that the energy crisis may be a put-up job or coming from all sorts of sources. A wire survey released today shows that more oil flowed into the United States in 1973 than a year earlier. And while statistics were hard to come by, it appears that much of the increase occurred after the Arab oil shortage had begun. In one port city, the hike was a spectacular 531%, and that's not all. It's been revealed that a key administrator of naval oil reserves has resigned rather than accept further encroachments by oil companies upon government-owned oil fields. Lieutenant Commander Kirby Brandt has said he's leaving the Navy because he refuses to continue lying for the government. Brandt believes that the oil crisis is a phony issue manufactured as an excuse for opening government lands to oilmen. Meanwhile, Senator Walter Mondale of Minnesota has said he wants to see a Watergate investigation of the oil crisis. Mondale claims the people have a right to know what's really going on. Now more news. High-level attempts to hammer out a Middle East peace settlement continue this evening. State Secretary Kissinger is in Israel, where he conferred earlier today with Prime Minister Meir and other high-ranking government officials. Kissinger traveled to Israel after having met yesterday and today with Egyptian President Sadat, Kissinger presumably carrying Sadat's position on a Mideast troop disengagement plan to Israel for Mrs. Mayer's reaction. The head of the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, William Ronan, says the experimental Sunday half-fare program is going to be extended. The half-price plan on subway, bus, and commuter rail will be continued at least until the end of June. Memorial Day and Washington's birthday will also be included. According to Ronan, an additional half million people have been lured to public transit since bargain Sundays got underway. An off-duty New York City policeman has been charged with homicide in connection with the shooting death of a fellow off-duty patrolman in bizarre circumstances early today. The charge has been filed against William Donahue of Staten Island in the death of Timothy Murphy, who also lived on Staten Island. Donahue told investigators that he fell down some cellar stairs at Murphy's home after both officers had been drinking. He said that Murphy apparently came to his aid, and as Donahue started to regain consciousness, he drew his pistol and accidentally shot Murphy. The National Weather Service forecast now, clear and cold tonight, low 15 to 20, sunny and cold Sunday, high near 30, increasing cloudiness Sunday night, low in the mid-20s, a chance of occasional light snow Monday, high in the low 20s, northwest winds, uh, northwest winds rather, 10 to 20 miles per hour, diminishing to about 10 miles per hour by morning, Variably winds at uh, 10 miles per hour or less Sunday, becoming southerly at about 10 miles per hour Sunday night. In clear midtown Manhattan at the moment, temperature 25 degrees, humidity 63%, the wind northwest 10 miles per hour, the barometer 30.37 rising. That's it. The news at 9. Bill Maher in the WOR newsroom, inviting you to stay tuned now for Joe Franklin on WOR New York and RKO General Station. feel like an actor? Well, there are times when you have to guess at what the actor himself or the actress is going to, how long it's going to take to do a certain thing. So in essence, you do the silent acting with your feet or your hands. The horse will whinny. That's enough for me, Jerry. All right. Because you'll be busy. And I'll go into them. We come out of the music queue with the clop, 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 clop. Right. What time you got, Jimmy? Well, most terrifying, you've been the apparition. No, I don't. belong to those who died. The violent death. The actor must understand that he's looking at words, but he can't read the words. He must take these words and make them come alive. 
And the radioactor is just the most skillful of all the professions that relate to entertainment who can take printed words and make them perform. They don't sound as if they're being read. That's the skill of a radio actor. Matter of true fact, it all happened 30 years ago. The horse is too, has too much presence. Off a little more. Okay, stand by. We'll do this all over again. On Thursday, January 10, 1974, the crew of Skylab 4, which had been orbiting the Earth for more than 50 days, was granted a day off. The week prior, during a televised news conference, Mission Commander Gerald Carr said he missed cold beer and football. That same day, the U.S. carried out three simultaneous nuclear explosions as part of Operation Arbor in Nevada. January 13th was Super Bowl VIII Sunday. The defending champion Miami Dolphins faced off against the Minnesota Vikings at Rice Stadium in Houston. More than 70,000 were in attendance. That evening, Floyd Calber signed on for NBC News with coverage of potential peace between Egypt and Israel, brokered by Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. This is the NBC Sunday Night News, brought to you by Exxon. Tonight, January 13th, reported by Floyd Calber. Good evening. It now seems that Secretary of State Henry Kissinger has arranged a major breakthrough toward peace in the Middle East. Kissinger met first today for about 10 hours with the Israeli leaders, getting their agreement to a plan for military disengagement. He is now in Egypt to present this plan to Egyptian leaders. A full report on all this now from NBC News correspondent Richard Valeriani. Looking for a solution to the ongoing Middle East crisis, Kissinger spent 10 hours meeting with Israeli officials, hammering out a proposal for a peace settlement with Egypt. He next flew to Cairo to present the document to Anwar Sadat. After meeting with Sadat, the plan was to return to Tel Aviv with Sadat's version of the proposal for Israel's acceptance or rejection. This was good for President Nixon, who despite an 18-day birthday vacation in California and an insistence that he would leave the past behind him and focus on 1974, couldn't seem to shake Watergate, the energy crisis, and continued high inflation. Afterward, Foreign Minister Abahiban talked about the results of the meeting. ...being heard and taken into account the reports that we heard from the Secretary of his conversations in Egypt. Uh, we decided to uh, authorize him to present to the Egyptian government um, an Israeli plan for the disengagement and separation of forces uh, on the Egyptian front. At a working luncheon at Iban's home, discussions continued on the disengagement proposal. This calls for Israeli forces to withdraw to strategic passes in the Sinai, about 20 miles east of the canal, while the Egyptian force on the east bank is substantially reduced. The plan also envisions prompt action toward reopening the canal, which has been closed since the 1967 war. Tonight, a reception was arranged at Bayan's home in Tel Aviv, so the talks could continue. After the diplomatic niceties were observed, Bayan and Elazar took Kissinger into a small private room to show him maps of their version of how the new ceasefire line should be drawn. 
Kissinger then flew back to Egypt to present the Israeli proposal to President Sadat. Sadat is certain to suggest changes, so Kissinger will certainly be back in Israel tomorrow night or Tuesday. What happens here then will determine whether or not one more flight of the Kissinger Mini shuttle will be necessary to nail down an agreement. Richard Valeriani, NBC News at Tel Aviv Airport. If Egypt accept this, accepts this new Middle East agreement, it will then go on to the Geneva Peace Conference table, where sources say that a final accord could be worked out in two or three weeks' time. Also in this evening's news, President Nixon is back in the White House. He returned there early this morning aboard a small government jet from his vacation in California. And we'll have a report on the less-than-perfect opening of the largest airport in the United States. We're 300 feet below the Illinois countryside in a mine run by a subsidiary of Exxon. All around us is America's most abundant fossil fuel, coal, plain old coal. America has about one-third the entire world's supply. In terms of the energy it contains, our coal outweighs our oil and gas put together. And at a time when our country is concerned about its energy, that's a good thing to know. Well, there's a hitch. A lot of our nation's coal isn't being used. One reason is sulfur. Coal from most of the mines in our Appalachian and Midwestern states contains too much sulfur, and sulfur pollutes our air. Exxon and others are working on several processes to remove the sulfur. Once perfected, plants and factories will be able to burn more of the high sulfur coal that America has in abundance. That'll be good for our country, good for our air. Exxon, we'd like you to know. President Nixon ended an 18-day stay in California. He flew back to Washington, landing at Andrews Air Force Base at 3 this morning. The president traveled in a Jetstar, a twin-engine plane like those used by corporation executives. With him were Mrs. Nixon, daughter Tricia, Bibi Rebozo, a doctor, an aide, two secret servicemen, and the president's pet dog. No helicopters. They used cars to get to the White House. Tom Brokaw reports on what the president faces next. On his birthday in California last week, President Nixon told his daughter Julie that this will be a good year, a better year. But President Nixon returns to Washington facing some monumental problems. New stories about the existence of a military spy ring in the White House during his first term. The continuing energy crisis, continuing inflation, and forecast of a recession. The prominent role of the United States in the risky Middle East peace talks and, of course, the impeachment investigation. There are signs from the White House that President Nixon plans to deal with one group of problems by offsetting them against the other. He will become visibly involved in energy, the economy, and the Middle East, while the White House attempts to portray the impeachment investigation as politically inspired by the president's traditional Democratic opponents. White House officials know that this will be a rough year for President Nixon, but they believe that he can survive. Tom Brokaw, NBC News, at the White House. Senator Barry Goldwater, who two months ago said President Nixon's prestige was at an all-time low, said today that the president's ability to lead has improved. On the NBC News program Meet the Press, Goldwater said that he would not suggest the president resign and allow Vice President Ford to become president. Sometimes we get so engrossed in domestic matters in this country, we forget that the biggest job of the president is foreign policy. And in my travels in other parts of the world very recently, uh, I find the world to have a very high opinion of uh, President Nixon and Mr. Kissinger. 
I think they sense in the United States the ability now, something we haven't shown, uh, at least during my experience, an ability to get peace in the Middle East, to begin to get the superpowers together. Now, if the president were to resign at this particular moment, I think it would cause an unusual upheaval in American politics. Uh, I can't believe, for example, that the Democratic Party would sit idly by and allow uh, Vice President Ford to become president. I think they might start an effort for a constitutional amendment whereby they'd call for a special election. And if this, anything like this came about, where we didn't have an orderly transition at this time in the world's history, I think it could raise havoc with the whole world. One line of speculation around Washington is that if the Republicans were to ask President Nixon to resign, it would be men such as Goldwater who would have to do the asking. His statement today that he would refuse to do that is considered to have strengthened the president's position. The Rhine River. Its waters sweep below historic castles, through majestic gorges, and past an oil refinery run by an Exxon affiliate near Karlsruhe, Germany. The refinery needs three million gallons of water a day for cooling and processing. After the water is used, it flows into the Rhine. But before we let it out, it goes through three separate cleaning treatments. During the final treatment, special microorganisms attack the remaining pollutants. And only when we're satisfied with the cleanliness of the refinery water do we release it into the Rhine. Around the world, from Singapore to San Francisco, Exxon's refineries face different water treatment problems and different community environmental needs. Wherever the refinery, whatever the needs, Exxon is working to find solutions. Exxon, we'd like you to know. In Cambodia, there was heavy fighting today on the northern edge of Phnom Penh. Government troops are trying to stop a communist force that threatens that capital city. The battle is in the marshland along the Tanli Sap River. Phil Brady has a report. Every day now, more and more troops are boarding naval landing craft on the edge of the Tonle Sap River here in the heart of Phnom Penh. These men came from the best government outfits, the Marines, the Airborne, and the Special Forces. They're tough, and they're cocky, too. They know they're only committed when the situation is bad. And on the far side of this river, only five miles north of Phnom Penh, the situation is just that. For several weeks now, the Khmer Rouge have methodically been advancing down the eastern bank of the Tonle Sap River. They've ground up every government unit that's tried to stop them. The Khmer Rouge are now close enough to Phnom Penh to shell it. In fact, almost all of the enemy rockets that have recently hit the city were fired from around here. Also, the communists have been shelling government units on Route 5, on this side of the river. Fishermen caught in the middle of this crossfire have all hoisted white flags over their boats, hoping this will protect them. So far, it has. The government's got plenty of ammunition, and it's using it. For days, this naval gunboat's been firing 105-millimeter shells point-blank into enemy positions on the eastern bank. But so far, the Khmer Rouge haven't watched. There have been no official figures on the overall government losses, but officers here said they've been light. 
mostly they admit, because their troops haven't been able to go on the attack. Cambodian officers here say that the Khmer Rouge drive down the east bank of the Tonle Sap River is part of their overall strategy of closing in on Phnom Penh from several different directions, then laying siege to it, and then trying to take the capital itself. Phil Brady, NBC News, five miles north of Phnom Penh on the Tonle Sap River. Surgeons operated today on Bing Crosby. They took away a part of his left lung, including an abscess the size of a small orange. They said that it was a fungus infection and not cancer. The Miami Dolphins won the Super Bowl in decisive fashion today, defeating the Minnesota Vikings 24-7. The Dolphins were led by fullback Larry Zonka, quarterback Bob Greasy, and a defense that thoroughly contained Minnesota quarterback Fran Tarkenton. Here is a report. The Dolphins started the drive right after the opening kickoff. Larry Zonka found a big hole and went 17 yards. A few plays later, Zonka carried over from the five to give the Dolphins their start toward a repeat title. The drive covered 62 yards in 10 plays. After the Vikings couldn't move the ball, Miami did. This time, Bob Greasy passed from the 15 to Marlon Briscoe on the one. Two plays later, Jim Cook took it over from the one. The point was good, and it gave Miami a 14-0 first quarter lead. After a Dolphins field goal, the Vikings started their first move. Fran Tarkenton hit John Gilliam, who found an opening in the otherwise tough Miami defense. He was pulled down on the 15, the Vikings' longest gain of the day. But the Dolphins tightened. Oscar Reed's desperation drive for a needed first down was stopped. Taking a 17-0 lead into the second half, the Dolphins added some more. Greasy hit Paul Warfield, who was a doubtful participant, but who made a diving catch on the 10. A few plays later, it was Zonka again, this time from the two. Zonka carried in, and he got a total of 145 yards for a Super Bowl record. The Vikings finally scored at the beginning of the final period. Tarkenton carried over on a keeper. That made it 24-7. The Vikings' chance to close the margin was stopped when Tarkenton's pass was intercepted by Miami's Curtis Johnson on the one. That ended the game as far as the Vikings were concerned. Miami coach Don Shula personally greeted each of his players as they came off the field in the final seconds with their second consecutive Super Bowl win. The 24-7 final score left no doubt that the Dolphins are the best team in pro football. Ted Elbert, NBC News. Elmer Wayne Henley goes on trial for murder tomorrow in Houston. He's one of the teenagers who led police to burial sites from which they recovered the bodies of 27 young boys. And Byron DeLay Beckwith, the man twice tried but never convicted in the Medgar Evers case. He goes on trial in New Orleans tomorrow, accused of carrying a ticking time bomb into that city. Those are two of the stories coming up in the week ahead. And here are some others. The Joint Committee of Congress begins hearings tomorrow on petroleum facts and figures. It's the first of four announced congressional hearings on the energy crisis. Many congressmen returned to Washington after the holiday recess with the views of their constituents still ringing in their ears. The voters back home aren't sure about the energy crisis, whether it exists at all, and Congress wants to find out what it's all about. The Western European governments will be conferring this week about President Nixon's invitation for a joint meeting with the United States to discuss the energy crisis. They're expected to accept but not without Britain and France especially posing conditions designed to protect their good relations with the Arab oil producers. 
Israeli and Egyptian negotiators sit down at the conference table in Geneva again this week in an effort to work out an agreement on the separation of the two armies now facing each other in the Sinai. The Israelis are hopeful of success following the visit of Secretary of State Kissinger this weekend. On Tuesday in Washington, the new fuel allocation regulations are to be issued. The source with access to the rules said they do not include gasoline rationing. Steady as she goes. Captain Robin Rowlands is an Exxon tanker captain. But right now, he's on dry land. This room is a mock-up of a super tanker bridge, a training device that teaches safe sea maneuvers. You see, before many of our veteran captains move up to super tankers, we send them to schools like this one in Delft, Holland, and like this one in Grenoble, France. Here, miniature super tankers give our captains experience in dockings and moorings. Most captains are surprised. When they go into the boat, it doesn't handle like a little boat. It handles like a big ship. You do say five dockings a day, now that's equal to three trips to the Persian Gulf and back. If I had my way, every captain in the bloody world should go through it. Exxon supports this training because we know one of the best ways to run a safe ship is to start with a safe captain, like Robin Rowlands. Exxon, we'd like you to know. Texas got a new airport today, the world's largest, they call it. It was over five years in building, and it was to have opened in October, but they didn't make it. They weren't quite ready today either, but they opened anyway, and George Lewis was there. The new airport is bigger than Manhattan Island, and it comes complete with some Texas-size headaches. The opening was supposed to have marked the beginning of a rapid expansion in air service to Dallas and Fort Worth. But so far, it has gone the other way because of the fuel shortage. Fourteen flights were eliminated when the airlines moved in here. Airport officials predicted some confusion on the first day of operations, but it was worse than they had expected. Flights were delayed, passengers got lost and missed their connections, and airport personnel, not used to working here, couldn't help very much. Didn't wait here any longer. Oh, why, why don't they get that door down? Well, we're trying, see. Then there was the problem of baggage. In the Braniff terminal, the conveyors weren't delivering baggage, they were eating it. Some passengers who had to wait hours for their bags were not very impressed. I think it'd be a fine deal if they could get it working. <laughs> very inconvenient for us. I don't think we'll ever again come through this airport. First of all, we've been an hour and a half waiting on our baggage. We left Corpus Christi this morning at 8 o'clock. We could have driven and been here faster. The new airport is so huge, passengers have to ride automated trains from one place to another. But the system has been plagued with technical troubles, which may take seven months to fix. The ride costs 25 cents. Many people think it should be free. At least it's easy to get change from a machine, but for every dollar the passengers put in, they only get back 95 cents. Perhaps the ultimate frustration was reserved for people who wanted to call friends and relatives to say they'd run into trouble at the new airport. It uh, costs a quarter to call anywhere from here. So the airport of tomorrow has the prices of tomorrow. George Lewis, NBC News, at the Dallas-Fort Worth Regional Airport. That's the news for this Sunday evening. I'm Floyd Calber. Good night for NBC News.
Few Americans have ever seen a really big oil tanker called a super tanker. They are the most economical way to move oil across water. Many industrial countries are taking advantage of super tankers, but not the United States. America does not have a single oil terminal in a port where the water is deep enough to handle a super tanker. But here's a solution to the problem. That buoy is a deep water berth two miles from shore. It's a special kind developed by Exxon. A tanker ties up to it, pumps its cargo to a pipeline buried in the seafloor, and the line takes the oil to storage tanks, which may be miles inland. This deep water berth is located off the coast of Okinawa. There are 100 others similar to it used by oil companies around the world. And they make a lot of sense, because when you can't take the tanker to the port, they let you take the port to the tanker. Exxon, we'd like you to know. This has been the NBC Sunday Night News, brought to you by Exxon. I was 13. I herded lambs beyond the village on the lee. The magic of the sun, perhaps, or what was it, affected me. I felt with joy all overcome, as though with God. A rover operator, Ilya Zakharov, authorization number 00461 of the Lunar Agricultural Expedition Program. The time for lunch had long passed by, and still among the weeds I lay, and prayed to God, I know not why. It was so pleasant then to pray. Phantom Nine, initialize. But not for long the sun stayed kind. Not long in bliss I prayed. Phantom Nine, initialized. It turned into a ball of fire and set the world ablaze. As though just wakened up I gaze the hamlet's drab and poor. And God's blue heavens, even they, are glorious no more. Ilya! Don't let it see you! From Denouncer Media comes a brand new experience in audio horror. Red Odyssey. Starring Alison Cossett, Peter Wicks, Sarah Golding, Erica Sanderson, James Scully, Peter Wyshynski, and Brandon Levine. Red Odyssey, a Lovecraftian horror story you will never forget. Coming September 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. The theater of the mind is eternal. The little man who used to come into the marketplace and sit there and tell the story, that's still the same thing. It's the little boy climbing up on daddy's lap and saying, Daddy, tell me a story. Essentially, I'm still doing that, Woody. But I have to give it the contemporary uh, electronic gimmickry, shall I call it, that makes it immediate now. And we're doing that. Well, I got fired by High Brown. You did? Yeah. Hmm. I got rehired on other things, but I was doing what they called a hitchhike, 
which took place at midnight, and it had to do with, you know, the network and local stations dropping off, and it, you know, but it had to be done at 12 o'clock on Saturday night, and it was for green shampoo. And it was really kind of a tedious job, because as I say, I was living in Connecticut, and sometimes if I didn't have anything to do on a Saturday, I'd come in just to do that. Or if we had been in town and Frank had been working, because he usually worked Saturday nights, then we'd go to the Hurley's Bar and Grill, which was called The Beach, <laughs> and we'd spend a lot of time there, and I would have to get upstairs to do the shampoo commercial. Well, I had been doing it for over a year, and I just went in one night, and I knew the copy by heart, practically, and he threw the cue, and I did the pitch beforehand, and I wound up by saying, so be sure and try Droom Champee. It, was, it wasn't one of those things where the audience would say, did I hear that right? I said it loud and clear. And I, after, the, after you know, he pushed the talk back, and he said, sweetheart, I think you've been doing this too long. I'll get somebody else. And he did. But I did. I said it brilliantly. <laughs> By the time the CBS Radio Mystery Theater debuted in 1974, the men and women associated with the show had been involved with each other for nearly 40 years. Mary Jane Higby grew up in Los Angeles and remembered Hollywood before it was a radio hub. I was brought up in Hollywood because my father was an actor and he went out there for D.W. Griffith in films. And I went through public uh, school in Hollywood. And, <laughs> yes, that's a long time ago. Yeah. And... When I, well, I was just out of high school and playing in the theater out there in the stock company, and someone saw me and asked me if I wanted to do a radio show, and I sure did, because it was the Depression. You see, radio was, as we knew it then, that type of radio, was the entertainment form of the stay-at-home days of the Depression That's and the right. gas-ration days of the Second World War. Hollywood was not the center for radio in the early 30s when you were working there. No, it certainly wasn't because there was no... Uh, uh, the uh, telephone wires were not set up in a way that made it easy to broadcast from west to east, what they called the round robin, which I never understood or knew anything about till I started writing the book. And then I went to an engineer at NBC and said, look, why did it cost Eddie Cantor $1,200 more to broadcast from Hollywood than it did from New York? Because I found this out during research. And he said, well, it was the round robin, dear. And then he explained to me that that is the skein of telephone wires which form the network. Now, I had been speaking over those networks for, like, 30 years then, and I didn't know it. <laughs> I think I had the idea that everything I said went right straight up to the roof and out <laughs> and into the homes across the nation. I'd never really thought of it. But, of course, I knew the telephone company had something to do with it, but I didn't realize the, uh, the extent that it, uh, the important part it played. And it was in 1937 that they learned to reverse the channels so that they could broadcast directly from the coast. And then there was a great rush of shows from New York to Hollywood. Unfortunately, it was the year I selected to go from Hollywood <laughs> to New York, but that has been the pattern of my whole life experience. <laughs> she was once called Queen of the Soaps. It was the first broadcast I did of When a Girl Marries, and I was extremely nervous because I wanted that job desperately. It was the first contract I ever had, and it meant an enormous amount to me because it meant a, re a security I knew about. I had been secure in the past five years, but I never knew it. Because every week you were thinking, now will I be called again next week? But I always was. 
But now I would have a contract with my name on it and somebody else's name on it, and I would be permanently engaged. So I was shaking all over. And Ken McGregor had made a strong fight to put me on the show against someone in the advertising agency who just happened not to like me or my work. He didn't know me personally. And I had finally achieved this, so I was terribly nervous, and I had a suit jacket on with a large belt buckle. And I sat down in a folding chair and kept my nose buried in that script and worked every second. I was keyed up to the nth degree. Then when I tried to get up, I found that I was tied to the chair, this belt buckle. <laughs> I couldn't figure out what it was. My icy fingers wouldn't disentangle me. And I saw the panicky look on the announcer's face because he'd ended his narration. And uh, the sound man rushed over to me and he realized he couldn't get me out of this position so he just picked up this chair and carried the chair over <laughs> the <laughs> microphone Thanks. and held it what did they view and somebody else i guess the announcer came around it was frank gallup then frank came around and they worked together and got the buckle out <laughs> and finally took the chair away and i played that whole scene with someone holding a chair up against my seat <laughs> But uh, fortunately, you didn't, uh, or no one saw the humor in it at that particular moment, so you were it able wasn't to maintain funny to your me, composure. Right. It was a terrifying thing. It was just dreadful. It was the longest broadcast <laughs> of my whole life. Mary Jane, you uh, were certainly considered the queen of the soap opera when you were in the radio broadcasting medium, weren't you? Well, I think there are several girls that would dispute that. I don't want to find poison in my tea in the morning. No, I would think that Ann Ilsner as Stella Dallas was a strong contender for the title, and Julie Stevens as Helen Trent came in very strong. I will send uh, also our gal Sunday, Vivian Smolin. But I will say that When a Girl Marries did hold the highest rating for five consecutive years. It was during the war years. We went on at 5 o'clock in the afternoon on NBC, and it was a very popular time and a very popular show during that period. It was lasted 18 years. I believe, but yes, until about 1959. That's right. Mm -hmm. And I guess you were on all but one network. You were with NBC, ABC, and CBS with that particular show. With that show. particular show. I yeah. played on all the networks in other shows, you I'm see, sure because we all did. did six or seven a day. Joan Banks, who later married Frank Lovejoy, remembered the New York hangouts. But you see, those days, we didn't have the kind of arrangement we have now. There was the show and the repeat. So that if you did a daytime show and you were on at 10 o'clock in the morning, then you had to repeat for the West Coast three hours later. So Kaufman's Drugstore was very big for coffee, and Colby's was great for us gin rummy players in between shows. The sad end of that was that if you did a show at night that went from 10 to 11, let's say, then you had to stay, no matter where you lived, and, and we were living in Connecticut, which was quite a long commute at that point, and we had to stay until one o'clock and get off the air at two o'clock to do the show for the West Coast. So the, the, the hours, you know, were kind of, of weird when you were doing the nighttime stuff. But during the day, work, as you all know, no matter what any of us does, work begets work. And those of us that were in at the beginning of commercial radio as it finally, you know, evolved. We all were learning our business and we all got pretty good at it and the more experience we got, the more in demand we were. So I don't know you could call that cliquish, but the, uh, I would say pretty much the same people worked same over movie. and over again. It was very hard, for instance, for a Broadway actor to come over and compete with the skilled radio people because the technique was different and they didn't quite catch on to it. 
There she spent time with men and women, like the oft-heavy Larry Haynes. Well, I tell you, it's a funny thing. In each medium, they, they look for different things. Uh, physically, uh, no one ever thought of me as a heavy on stage. I do play a heavy uh, in a visual medium, namely motion pictures, and the film that's about to come out, which I'll tell you about later. But it had been uh, difficult for me to impress upon people that uh, I played heavies in radio, and they looked at me and said, no, come on now, you're, you're much too cherubic. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. So I, I uh, made a transition from playing heavies to uh, doing comedy, which I always loved doing anyway, and I still do, and I played some of it in radio. And uh, now I'm known as a, a light comedian in, in theater anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, it, no, it was well, easy to work with it with a voice. You, you you knew this vocal quality, and so you said, "Well, let's have Larry well, Haynes." Give me a Larry Haynes type if you can't get Larry. Well, Haynes. Uh, yeah, that was always you know, <laughs> give me a Frank Lovejoy or give me someone mm -hmm. else. But there was a period where they never thought of me for anything but heavies, even in radio, until the latter part of my career in radio, and I was, I made the transition to uh, romantic leads, and. Uh, Nobody believed I could do it until I proved that I could. <laughs> did you change your vocal uh, quality when you did heavies? Uh, suppose you were doing one now. Would you, how would you, would you talk somewhat differently than you did? Well, you, you, you just uh, gruff them up a little bit, and uh, you make them a little more guttural and, and uh, less polished, and you, and you, got, a, you got a heavy. Yeah. You want to play romantic, you can talk like that. <laughs> Soften up a little bit. <laughs> These men and women were usually overbooked. Oh, I tell you, it really wasn't a young person's business because if you can picture, NBC was in the RCA building, which is at 50th Street between 5th and 6th Avenues. And at that time, CBS was at 485 Madison, which was at 52nd Street and Madison Avenue. So if you were lucky enough to do a show and finish a show at NBC and you had a rehearsal for something at CBS, you really had to have your track shoes right. on. And if you had a conflict, in other words, if they started without you, which they sometimes did, then you had to really fly. What so, about holding the elevator? Oh, yeah, yes. You'd, you'd, you'd ha sometimes have to have, to have the, the elevators hold we run so like that hell. the instant we were, you know, finished with whatever we did, they would take us downstairs and we wouldn't have to stop, you know, for the regular stops. It was, it was, <laughs> you as I say, you had to be young. Joan Banks went to the West Coast in 1948. Well, most of the people that came to California pre, you know, television activity were usually actors who had gotten an important screen role and were here for many months and got to like the climate. That They didn't come out here to leave New York because New York wasn't productive. It was, but they, you know, came out here and fell in love with it. The great egress of so many people was later on when New York started to really falter in terms of production. And then, whether they wanted to or not, a lot of people came out yeah. because there was more work out here. All right, now both of you, you came out here what, in the late 40s, was it? We came out in 48. 48. Mm -hmm. And you worked a lot of radio out of Hollywood, too. Well, yes. And I, I did, you know, things that I had heard in New York that I thought were just absolutely wonderful, like Lux Radio Theater. I mean, to be out here and be able to be on Lux Radio Theater was just the biggest thing that ever happened to it. But television was beginning to make inroads. I did work on um, Playhouse 90, and I did work on, and they, these were live, as you probably remember. And I did work on uh, Robert Montgomery Presents. The transition was beginning, and, and I was lucky enough to be working in both mediums. 
I used to do one Perry Mason a year, <laughs> that, and that was another. Gail Patrick knew I loved to do heavy, so she'd always make me the murderer. But eventually, the television shows were no longer being done by DuPont. They were being done by the networks, and it finally got to be more television than radio. It was about that time that TV came into the picture. E.G. Marshall was part of it from the start. I was a pioneer in television. I was on the first dramatic show that was done on the network, and it was at NBC Network. It was Our Town. Fred Coe was the director. He was a pioneer in television. Raymond Massey, Dora Morandi. At that time, it was an open end because we couldn't time the shows as well. If you'd go in between the time segment, for instance, we would go off the air at 10.10, well, to fill up that five minutes, there'd be a standby pianist or someone like that there just to fill in the the remaining five minutes. That went on for quite a while because we didn't know how many sets there were. Well, we knew how many sets there were, but we didn't know how many listeners there were because nobody cared that much about television. (laughs) They were listening to their radios. That's right. And then after a while... This was, what, 1946, 47, somewhere? Around in there, yeah. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it wasn't long before radio began to decline, as Joe Julian remembered. In your opinion, when did radio begin to decline as television began to ascend? You have much of a chance to go into television, as many of your peers did at that time. I did the first dramatic show that CBS ever did. <laughs> you were a real pioneer in every sense of the word. Yeah, it was a 12-minute thing. There was only one stationary camera. You couldn't move it to follow the actors. You know, It was like, almost like a stage production. Yeah. I think it was the late 40s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I remember there were only about 200 experimental television sets in the city at that time. They were programming these things experimentally. And I remember the director took us over to his house afterwards, and there was a fight on television. It was a championship fight of some kind. I forget who was fighting. But the only way you could tell the uh, difference between the two boxers was one had white shorts and the other had dark shorts. The images were so unclear. Yeah, this had to go back probably to the late 30s, I would think. That would seem to me late 40s would... No, it came back. It, it was right after I came back from England, uh-huh. which was in 1942. Mm-hmm. Oh, I said late 40s. Yeah. I was yeah. wrong. Yes, you're right about that. Well, at any rate, you did make it successfully over into television. You're uh, very much a part of the television scene today. And what part do you play on Somerset, the uh, daytime NBC soap? I play Vic Kirby, kind of a mysterious... Interesting handyman figure who could be up to no good or not. (laughs) But nearly 20 years later, thanks to Hyman Brown, CBS was back in the radio drama business in 1974. You've been associated for a very long time with radio drama. Don't you think its day is over? Don't you want pictures? Hardly, hardly. The pictures are right in your head, Woody. I make better pictures with your mind and your imagination than any camera can make with the actuality. What's important is that the words themselves take on a meaning which is not encumbered by faces or by backgrounds. The words paint the picture. And those words you hear. You listen to those words and create your own pictures. Well, I'll be. Where did he go? I don't know. He just vanished, disappeared into thin air. What's the story concerning the ambulance? Oh, after about 
two years of trying to really break into big-time radio, I suddenly got myself two jobs in one day. And the times overlapped, and it never occurred to me to give one of them up. You know, the gods didn't want me to have this bounty. They wouldn't have offered it to me. So I accepted it, and then I realized the problem afterwards. I had about seven minutes to get across town in New York from Madison Avenue CBS to WHN, which was at 46th Street and Broadway. I timed myself running, <laughs> and it didn't make it. So I decided I'd hire an ambulance. I got an ambulance number from the yellow pages. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked them how much they'd charge, and they said $12 if you're an invalid, $15 if you're not. So why the difference? Because it's against the law to carry you if you're not an invalid. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a wild ride. The ambulance was waiting for me, and I tipped the elevator man on both buildings, you know, in advance. Uh, I ran out of the studio. When I finished, it was Merton Marge, the CBS show. The elevator wasn't there, and I nearly broke my thumb pressing the down button. Every second was precious. You Certainly. Know. So there are the ambulance guys waiting for me. And he says, look, now, I can take a chance of going across town. It's a much shorter distance. But I might get caught in traffic even with my siren. Or I can go up Madison Avenue and across 57th Street where it's wide, and I come down that way. It'll take a little longer. I mean, it'll, it'll be shorter, even though it seems lo it'll be a longer route. So I said, all right, go that way. And he started the uh, siren screaming, and and then the siren broke down. <laughs> it turned into around 7th Avenue, 57th Street. And he said, I can get out and fix it, but it'll take about a minute. And he said, I said go ahead, go on right through, you know. <laughs> so he went right through, and... The, Cars were jamming on their brakes, you know, to avoid collisions. I got there and I ran out of the ambulance, which was a strange sight for the passers-by <laughs> there. And I would think yeah. I was running from an ambulance. <laughs> <laughs> the elevator was waiting for me there, and I uh, got in and uh, took me up. And I just had time to take one gulp of breath and speak. But it taught me a lesson never to try anything like that again. <laughs> Actually, I lost money on the deal after paying for a standing. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a challenge. On Monday, January 21st, 1974, the Just Heard Joe Julian co-starred with Paul Hecht, Joan Banks, Mary Jane Higby, Tony Roberts, and George Petrie in Murray Burnett's story, Dead for a Dollar, on the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. Come in. Welcome. Welcome to the Mystery Theater. I'm Hyman Brown. Vengeance is traditionally supposed to be the province of the Lord. But too often, individuals decide that they will take it upon themselves to mete out punishment to those who may richly deserve it. The results are almost always devastating. As witness... You ask me how we're going to kill him, Harry. We're going to shoot Jason Grant in the belly. Is that painful? Very. You don't like the idea? I like it so much, it scares me. Then it's a deal. You're with me? I'm with you. All the way. Have you thought about a place and a time for the... The, uh, the uh, execution? Yeah. You bet. Our mystery drama, Dead for a Dollar, was written especially for the Mystery Theater by Murray Burnett 
and stars Paul Hecht. I'll return shortly with Act One. In today's world, the golden key to success is too often unfortunately attained through an absolute ruthlessness and utter disregard of ethics, morality, and the rights of others. Jason Grant was a symbol of such success, a multimillionaire and a power in the world of international finance. Grant sat on a golden throne built on the ruin of many lives and many hopes. Along with his millions, Jason Grant has earned the hatred of more people than he bothered to remember. This day, two men in whom the fires of hatred burned sat in a bar. Not a toast, Harry. Why not? To Jason Grant. May his soul rot in hell. Amen. <clears throat> How long has it been, Harry? How long has what been? How long have we been meeting in this bar and drinking the same stupid toast? Let's see. Denise divorced me in 69. I ran into you here about a year later, so I'd say two years, give or take a couple of months. (laughs) What do you think Jason would say if he heard us? No folly it went. Here we are, two men acting like a like a couple of sniveling school kids. Now what do you suggest we do? Kill him. Just like that. Kill him. As slowly and as painfully as possible. I want to hear Jason Grant screaming and begging for mercy. Just like my brother screamed when Jason left him to bleed to death on the road to Busan while, while he bugged out to save his own skin. Yeah, we'd be sure and get caught. So what? So what? Yeah, so what? We'll just tell our story to a jury. We can... That still doesn't give us the right to kill. Look, does Jason Grant deserve to die for what he did to you? It wasn't only breaking up your marriage. You and Jason were partners. And he not only stole Denise, but the business you'd built up for 11 years. I know what he did. So what did you do about it? Wynn, get off my back. You're so dead set on killing him. Why don't you go ahead and do it? Because I need you, Harry. For what? Look, Harry, I'm willing to go to prison. But I don't see any sense in walking in if there's a way of staying out. How am I going along with you? Help keep you out of jail. We'll give each other an alibi. We'll swear we were together when Grant is killed. Have you thought about how we'd do it? I have. You see this? Hey, put that away. It's so uptight. It's a gun I picked up in Korea. I figured I might have a use for it someday, so uh, so I kept it in good condition. Put it away. Harry, you asked me how we were going to do it. We're going to shoot him in the belly. That's painful. Very. You don't like the idea? I like it so much it hurts. Then it's a deal. You're with me. I'm with you all the way. We thought about a place and a time for the... The, uh... The execution? Yeah. You bet. But, Harry, I need you to check some facts for me. If I can. Now, you once told me that Jason worked late every Monday night. 
That's right. He still does it? I'm not sure, but I guess he does. That's when we're going to do it. Late on a Monday night. He'll be alone. I'll walk in, shoot him, and walk out. Oh, Finn. I thought you really had something worked out. You can't go into the building at night without signing in and signing Who out. Who said anything about getting in at night? You just... Listen, I walk into the building about 5 o'clock carrying one of those, those two boxes a telephone repairman have. Yeah? There won't be any tools in it, just work clothes. I'll hang around till about 8 or 9 when I'm sure Jason will be alone. They're cleaning women. Sure, but by that time, I'll have changed clothes. All you have to do is look like you're, you're working or, or going somewhere to do something. They won't bother you. How will you get out? After I leave him bleeding. The way he left Mike in Korea. I'll just walk out the door. Take the elevator. Walk by the night guard. It might. It just might work. It will work. And all you have to do is say that we had dinner together at your place. No. No! I thought you I said... I said I was with you all the way. That means I could also pull a trigger. We'll toss a coin to see who does the killing. The alibi will work just as well at your place. Do you know how to use a gun? What's to know? Hey, what about the sound of the shots? No sweat. I got a silencer. Okay, let's toss. You're sure? Dead sure. <laughs> Jason Grant's office. Uh, Mr. Grant, please. May I ask who's calling? Tell him it's an old friend. Well, I'm afraid that is... Tell him it's his former partner, Harry Tolan. Hold on a moment, please. Yes? Harry Tolan. Harry Tolan? <laughs> Somebody's putting you on, Kay. Maybe. I've never met Harry, but he sounds as he would sound from what you've told me. Have I ever told you you're bright as well as beautiful? <laughs> I think maybe once. Do you want to talk to him? Why not? He must be really desperate to call me. I'll enjoy listening to him sweat. Your pleasure is my only desire, sir. <laughs> I think you've proved that. Thank you, Mr. Grant. Go ahead, Mr. Tolan. Jason? Yes, Harry. What can I do for you? might ask what I can do for you this time, Jason. That will be the day. It is the day. I strongly suggest that you see me. You never strongly suggested anything. I'm all tied up, so you'd better let me hear it now. It's face to face, Jason, or it's goodbye. Goodbye. So long. Uh, hold the phone. Do you, um, do you have a number where I can reach you if I get a break in my schedule? I do indeed, Jason. Radio legend Joan Banks played secretary Kay Woodhouse. I was doing a lot of the soaps, and uh, I did the Kathleen Norris show, and I was doing Portia Faces Life, and I was also doing my recorded show, and that's the show you may never have heard of, but it was called Mary Foster, the Editor's Daughter. No. And I did that show because we recorded it. We recorded five shows, and that was on the old acetate records, no tapes, mind you. We recorded that show once a week and did five shows. When I left New York to come to California, 
I had done some wonderful things. I did the Kate Smith Hour and the Rudy Valley Show, and I had done, you know, really wonderful, spectacular things. The one that I really felt bad about leaving was Mary Foster, the editor's mm -hmm. daughter, because I really cut my teeth on learning radio technique. I had a long time in which to do it. The director of that show was a woman whose name was Martha Atwood. Oh, my. And she was a very, very tough cookie. She had her particular group of people, her stock company, and it was very hard to get into. And if you got a job with Martha Atwood and her ever-present secretary, Von Bernhardt, oh. Francis Von Bernhardt, <laughs> and they were thick as these, and you couldn't get through to them on the telephone, and if you weren't in her little group, you, you know, it, you, you, you were never going to get into it. But that show was really done for the Kroger Baking Company. That's why I say it, was, it came out of Cincinnati, and it was strictly for the section of the middle of the country where Kroger grocery chains are as big as Ralph's are out here. But the big fun that I got, because I was playing a heavy on Portia Face's life, and I really enjoyed that much more than the good, clean, fun girl. They're much more interesting. And Ed Byron was the producer-director of Mr. District Attorney. And whenever he had a juicy, heavy part, he would cast me for it. And, and he was a wonderful director, and he and Jerry Devine, who was the writer, Jerry is out here now. Uh, this is they, your FBI? No, no, no. This, this was No, no, this was Mr. District Attorney with Justin. Justin. But outside of Mary as an extension of myself, really, the most fun I had was when I got a chance to play against myself and do the heavies and do the nasty, dirty girls. I had a good time doing that. <laughs> Jason, that secretary of yours is something else. You of all people, Harry, ought to know that I have very good taste in women. Yes, I know. What have you got in that toolbox? Don't tell me you're now a mechanic. All in good time, Jason. You had something to tell me. Yes. Well, I don't have much time. You know the saying, if you can't lick them, join them? Come on. I've decided to join you, Jason, to do business your way. <laughs> You wouldn't know how. Well, how's this for a starter? Before I tell you what you must hear, I want a certified check for $50,000. When I've finished, I want another fifty. And you know me well enough to realize that I'm not going to give you $50,000 just because you asked for it. Not even to save your life? Are you trying to blackmail me, Harry? I'm trying to do you a favor. Your life should be worth at least $100,000. You're serious. You think anything else in the world would have brought me to your office? Before I agree, answer one question. Do you know who's going to kill me? I do. Who? Me. You see, the coin came up tails. The check will be here any minute. I suppose you start telling me about it. Suppose we wait for the check. Hmm, you have changed. Here's the check. Certified as requested. Thank you, Kay. Not at all. Here you are, Harry. Now let's have the story. You remember Wynn Thomas. Who? Wynn Thomas. You served in Korea with him and his brother. Oh, yes, yes, I remember him. He's never forgiven you for running off and leaving his brother to die. He's a damn fool. The kid would have died anyway. I had my own neck to save. He doesn't agree with you. 
Well, this isn't worth $50,000. And how about this? Put that gun down. It's Wynn's gun. We tossed a coin to see who was going to use it on you. You're crazy. You're lying. Am I? You asked me about the toolbox I'm carrying. If you care to look in it, you'll find a repairman's uniform. I'm supposed to stay here tonight until you're alone. You still work late on Mondays, don't you, Jason? Yes. And I'm supposed to come in here and shoot you with a silencer you'll also find in the toolbox. You'd never get away with it. Maybe not. But Wynn's waiting at home right now, and he'll swear that we had dinner together. Now, how about the other 50? <laughs> You've got about as much chance of getting that as you have of cashing the check I just gave you. What? Try it. Uh, it's, it's certified. Not by the bank. We have a stamp here which looks authentic. Did you think you could really put something over on me? Yes, I see by your stupid face you did. Now get out of here before I call the police. they never believe you. I'll tell them. You'll tell them what? You see this? This is a tape recorder. Every word you said is right here on tape. Now what do you think the police will say when they hear it? Your confession, if it's really true and not a con game. Now put the gun on my desk and get out. I thought I could play your own dirty game, but you're right. I can't. But I can still kill you. The tape recorder's still on. Would you like to check it? No. Put the gun down, Harry. That's right. I'll, I'll, now beat I'll, it. I'll kill you. I, I promise I'll kill you. Or if I don't, win Thomas will. And that's something you'd better believe. A murder has not been committed. Jason Grant, as you heard, is an expert at riding roughshod over people. Believe me when I tell you, he was certain he had nothing to fear from Harry Tolan, nor was he too much concerned with Wynne Thomas. We'll learn whether Jason judged correctly when Mystery Theater returns shortly with Act Two. We've heard the ruthless side of tycoon Jason Grant, but we must also be fair and remember that Jason was a family man with a wife and a son and a mistress. As we continue, Jason Grant is sitting in his office later that evening, Monday night. The door to his office opens and his beautiful secretary, Kate Woodhouse, enters. Finished working? No, but come in and close the door. Hmm. That's quite a gown. Thank you, sir. And I do mean you, since you were kind enough to pay for it. My pleasure. You, um, uh, had me close the door. Are you expecting someone? Just Tony. Your son? Tony, yes. Oh, well, then I'd, I'd better get... Hey, what's this? A gun? Terry Tolans. He was just here. He was going to kill me. Uh, you're putting me on. No, no, he really was. The fool. He actually thought he could get away with a stupid ploy like that. He had a whole story that I have on tape. You, you ought to put that gun away. Oh, no, no, it amuses me to leave it there. To remind me how right I was to get rid of him years ago. I only made one mistake, and that was marrying his wife, Denise. Well, how about Tony? 
the son you had with her. <laughs> that's to remind you that Tony is something very special to me. And that's the last time you'll ever slap me. I'm warning you. I hope this is the last time you'll need it. And maybe you need a new girl. I know exactly what I need, Kay. I need you as my wife. Well, maybe you'd better tell that to Denise, your present wife. I already have. I've told Denise I'm divorcing her. And I'm telling Tony when he comes here tonight. Well, if Tony's coming, I'd better get out of here. We'll go over it later tonight, huh? Stop talking and come here. Yes, Jason. Uh, excuse me, I didn't Come mean in, to... Tony, come in. It's quite all right. It looked a little better than all right to me. Uh, that's quite a gown, Kay. Uh, thank you. See you later, Jason. Right. The usual place? Of course. I've got to hand it to you, Dad. I've had big eyes for Kay myself, but while I was thinking, I guess you were doing. And uh, speaking of that, uh, what's that gun doing on your desk? Oh, remember Harry Tolan? Isn't... Wasn't he your partner years ago? And wasn't he married to Mother? Correct. The gun is his. And what's it doing here? Harry said he was going to use it to kill me. What? After all these years? Well, he wanted money. He said he'd make some kind of deal with me. I put the whole conversation on tape and kicked him out. He sounds like a fool. A good description. Now, what I wanted to tell you... If it's was... about the VCM steel deal, I've already taken care of it. They agreed to our terms. It's not about the VCM deal. Now, one thing you still have to learn, Tony, is to listen. Remember, people are sending up signals all the time. Now, if you can read them, you'll always be one or two steps ahead of them. What if you don't like the signals? Suppose the signal light is flashing red. What is that supposed to mean? The signal I see coming up is something about you and Kay. <laughs> right. And Mother. Right again. Well, why can't you play around with Kay You haven't without... heard what I'm going to say. I don't have to. No. Oh, all right, go ahead. I suppose you must have known that for many years, the marriage between your mother and me was a matter of convenience. Look, Dad, I... I know how you feel about your mother, and so I wanted you to hear from me first that we've decided on a divorce. You mean you've decided on a divorce? You can put it that way if you like. But your mother will never have anything to worry about financially. Oh, and you think that'll make mother happy? It'll make her rich. That's not what she wants. It's what I want. And that's all that matters. What do you want? What about her? I see a quarrel coming. I don't think we should talk about this anymore tonight. On that, I agree with you. Good night. Tony. Yes? Think over what I've been saying about your mother being well provided for. She'll be fine, I know. I think you'll see it my way tomorrow. And if I don't? Then you'll see it my way next week. Yeah. When? Harry, where are you? What happened? I've been more... I blew it. You what? I blew it. You mean... You mean Jason Grant's still alive? Yeah. How? Well, it's a long story. Have you got the gun? No. Where is it? I left it in Jason's office. You better get up here right away. Okay, as soon as I can grab a cab. Now listen, if I'm not here, sit down and wait uh, and leave the TV on, you understand? Yeah, I got you. You better repeat it, Harry. 
If you're not in, I'll wait and watch the TV that you've left on. Right, and make sure you know what the show's about. Yeah, but when? when Never you... mind. Get the cab. Goodbye. George Petrie played Jason Grant. He'd been appearing on radio since the early days of the Great Depression. My first radio began in Hartford, Connecticut, in 1938. I was in the Federal Theater there. It was the heart of the Depression. Nobody was making a living. I mean, by nobody, I mean the middle range of people. There were always people making a living. But the working stiff was having a tough time. And President Roosevelt, under his NRA Recovery Act, National Recovery Act, decided that not only did working, the laborers need help, but he decided that artists need help. The Federal Theater was one of a branch of many, many branches of artists who were helped. Scene designers, costume designers, actors, of course. There were artists outside that. There were writers, there were poets. Everyone was being helped by this wonderful program. I was in the original Federal Theater, the first one in the country. I was with a stock company in New Haven where I was born, and I had graduated from college and looking for some kind of subsistence. And there was a stock company in New Haven formed by actors who were desperate enough to come from New York, take over this little theater, and act. We got $15 a week and a wealth of experience. And then we were approached by a lady who represented the Federal Theater, and she said that they wanted to start the theater right there. They were going to call it Connecticut One, and we were the nucleus of Connecticut One. Those of us, they, they kept on. They had to get rid of some, but I was fortunate enough to stay on. I spent six months in that program in New Haven, went to Bridgeport after that when the New Haven Company closed, and then went to Hartford. Now, Hartford had, besides the Federal Theater, a radio program, a local program, on WTIC. They did little plays, 15 minutes in length, for which we got, the when we started, the munificent sum of $5 per broadcast. We then went to $7.50. That was the top money. It was directed by an ex-silent movie actor named Guy Hedlund. I don't know why they got a silent movie actor to direct radio, but it made as much sense as anything else does in this world, I suppose. It was a pretty good company. Ed Begley was in it. Jan Minor was in it. An actor named Eddie O'Shea, who later changed his name, or the studio changed his name to Michael O'Shea, uh, was in it. Louis Nye was in it. It was a very good company. Now, we were very lucky because we did the play at night, and we did the show in the afternoon. So we, aside from picking up a little extra money, we were learning a new part of, of our craft. And it was very exciting. Mom? Tony? May I come in? Oh, of course, dear. Mom? I thought you were going to be at the office. I was. Dad told me. Oh. I, I know how you feel, and I... I I'd want... rather not talk about it. Well, that's what Dad said, but somebody has to talk about it. Why? Because, well, because you you don't just throw 18 years of marriage down the drain like... Oh, you'd be surprised how many people do just that. I was surprised. Honestly? 
Well, yes, I... I could see that you and Dad weren't really getting along, but I, th I thought... And you were wrong. Do you want it? Want what? The divorce. Of course I want it. You don't think I was very happy living with your father when... When what? Oh, Tony. Now, what's happening to us? We've never been uncomfortable with one another, and now we... Well, we can't seem to talk straight. I can well, fine. What do you want to say? I want to know whether you're really happy about it or whether... whether... You see, I said we couldn't. Or whether you're just saying that to make me feel better or whether Dad forced you to say it. Oh, don't be ridiculous, Tony. How could your father force me to do anything? Oh, you know what Dad's like. Do you, Tony? Yes, I do. Please, Mom... I just want to know how you feel about this... this divorce. I told you, Tony. I feel fine. Just fine. The devil you do. And this is the first time you ever lied to me. Who is it? Don't be a fool. Give me that gun. Give it to me. Don't. Maybe I was wrong the way I handled it. No. Please. I'm sorry, ma'am, but... Well, there's just no gentle way to tell a woman her husband's been murdered. I'm sorry. I'm hysterical, officer, but I... No, it's Lieutenant, I... ma'am. Lieutenant Metcalf. Oh, Lieutenant. How can I help you? Just a few questions. But wh when did it happen? Uh, as near as the coroner tells us, around 11 p.m. How? He was shot several times with a revolver. Oh. Well, I don't have to ask much about Mr. Grant. Everybody knows about him. I, I just want to find out if there was anything different about last night. I, I mean about him or his actions. Oh, no. No, nothing. He usually worked late on Monday evenings. Last night was no exception. How many people knew about this Monday night habit of his? Just, well, just about everyone. It's been in the papers yeah. and the... There have been magazine articles. Mm. Did he tell you about any special appointments that he might have had last night? No, he never discussed business with me, Lieutenant. You might ask his secretary. Miss Woodhouse? Yes. Yeah, that's being handled. Uh, Mrs. Grant, murder is a messy business, but I have to ask you this. How did you and Mr. Grant get along? How do any married couple who've been with each other for 18 years get along? There. Well, there have been rumors, and uh, I'm sorry. Yes, we were talking about getting a divorce. Whose idea was it, the... Oh, it, it was mutual, Lieutenant. We'd both gotten tired of being married. I see. Is your son in? Oh, I couldn't tell you. Have you asked the servants? Well, they don't seem to know. Oh, I'm sorry, but Tony's young, and 
Well, he, he comes and goes as he pleases. Where do you think it would please him to go today? If he's heard the news, I expect he'll either come home or go to the office. Thank you. You've been most cooperative. Uh, I won't bother you anymore. Hello? Mom, are you all right? Oh, Tony, where are you? At the office. I rushed over as soon as I heard. Oh. There are cops all over the place. I didn't believe... Excuse me, Mrs. Grant, is that your son? Yes, he's at the office. Who's that? Who's there? A police lieutenant. Uh, may I speak to... Well, of course. Just a minute, Tony. Mr. Grant? Yes? I'm Lieutenant Metcalf. Uh, your mother seems to be in pretty good shape. I'm in charge of the case, and I'd like you to wait for me at your office. I'll be right down. But, Mommy... I told you she's all right. We sent for a doctor, and you can go home as soon as we've talked. Morning, Duffy. Morning, Lieutenant. Where is he? Back in his own office. Lab men finished? They're packing up now. It's a big job, blood all over the yeah, joint. I saw it. Which way the kid's office? Down the hall and to the left. Anyone with him? Oh, I thought it was okay to leave him alone. Mm. How did he take it? About the way they all do. Except... Except? We kept repeating, I don't believe it, I don't believe it. And it uh, seemed as if he really couldn't believe that his father had been murdered. Yeah. Shock, maybe. Maybe. But from what I've heard about Jason Grant, he was a prime candidate for murder. Oh. Okay, Duff, you hang in here. I'll be right back. Mr. Grant. Uh, who are you? Lieutenant Metcalf, homicide. I spoke with you on the phone. Oh, yes. Uh, come in. I'm sorry, but I'm going to need your help. I'll do anything I can. I have to make funeral arrangements and mm -hmm. take care of Mother, sure. but... Well, how can I help? First, when did you last see your father? Last night, about 9.15. Anyone with him? His secretary, Kay Woodhouse. But she left. Did your father mention anything about appointments that he may have had later? No. Then as far as you know, you left him alone sometime between 9 and 9.30, and he had no appointment scheduled. Uh, that's right. And where did you go? Home. Now, it's no secret that your father had a lot of enemies. Can you think of anyone who look, might have... Uh, look, Lieutenant, uh, it'll come out sometime, so you may as well hear about it now. But first, I want to tell you that I still can't believe it. Believe what? My father's former partner, Harry Tolan, uh, who was also married to my mother before she married Dad, mm -hmm. Harry was in yesterday and threatened my father with a gun. What happened to the gun? Now, Dad took it from him. It was on his desk when I was there earlier. I see. And on Dad's tape recorder in the desk, you'll find the entire conversation between them. Thanks. We'll check it. But I'd like to know what it is that you can't believe. Well, I can't believe that Harry Tolan murdered my father. I've known him for years, and he... Uh, he just hasn't got the guts to kill a man. <laughs> Don't you leave me alone, Lieutenant. I never went back to his office. I didn't kill Jason, and you know it. Okay, let's go over it again, Mr. Tolan. You went to Grant's office with the gun. The gun that Ballistic says killed him. I told you I left it there. You did, and we know you did. At least two witnesses saw it on his desk. Now, you told him about the plot you and Wynn Thomas had cooked up. You asked money for your information. He laughed at you. That's right. Fine. So far. And then you went over to Wynn Thomas's apartment to tell him what happened. And we watched TV all night. 
I can tell you the shows that oh, we... Oh, Len, you're in big trouble. You're smart enough to realize that. Forget that tired old gag about, about telling me the plot of TV shows. I want to know if you and Thomas were there all night. I told you. Now, what did he say to you when you reached his place? Hello. And then? Then? Then he... he you offered me a drink and... And? And he, he said something about the show that was on TV. Ah, you you're a liar. You've been lying all the time. I swear You that... swear you're going to swear that you hatched up a plot to kill Grant, muffed it, came back, and you and Thomas talked about what was on TV? Come on, Tolan. Get wise and get yourself some help. Okay. Okay. When Thomas wasn't there when I got there, he'd left the TV on. When did he get back? About midnight. Just about. Win Thomas and Harry Tolan had their revenge. Jason Grant is dead. Before the body was quietly buried, the police had arrested Win Thomas for first-degree murder and named Harry Tolan as an accomplice. The case was closed to the satisfaction of the public and the police. But there may be some surprises when Mystery Theater continues shortly with Act Three. Mary Jane Higby played Denise Grant. She'd come to New York City from Hollywood in 1937. I decided to come east. It was the creative center. It still is, in essence, the, where, where the real spark of the thing starts, I think. There's a the great activity takes place on the coast because they had such a vast uh, pool of people there with big names, you see. And... Uh, I never regretted going to New York because what I was doing out there was making about as much money as anybody was, I think, which was about $100 a week if you broke your neck. And a um, half-hour show would pay you 25 or $30, and then Lux came along, and that was the first one that paid, well, Mary Pickford's first show for Royal Gelatin, and then Lux paid $50 for an hour show, but you had to rehearse two or three days, and the studios were so far apart. They were all a 30-minute drive by car, so you couldn't have conflicts. It was very hard. I remember turning down Cantor several times because I had Lux, and you just couldn't work them out. And it's where you might be called for something that would take you up to a fee of two or $300. You couldn't always do it because mm -hmm, you wouldn't... Mm -hmm. The time was, was used up. Now, in New York, things were more centrally located. There was a small radius there of the networks that you could get to them within a very few minutes. And then there was the great blessing of soap opera, of which we had none on the coast. Now, soap opera was great for women. There were a lot of women's parts. Any woman who was really very, very good could probably do four or five shows a day because we didn't have to memorize anything. We read it all from the script. And... Many were doing as much as seven during a day, seven soap operas. It was a great thing, this thing of having, uh, having to do things live. I had a friend, Mrs. Frank Lovejoy, and uh, Joan Banks was her name in those days, and she had a commercial that she had to do at NBC. And it was Saturday night at midnight, and she had one line. The announcer read a one-minute spiel, and Joni had to come in and say, I always use... Dream Shampoo. Now, no matter what she was doing, she had, oh, my commercial, stop it. Go over to NBC and do this in New York. Well, she was at a party one night, and she said, oh, my commercial. She ran down and jumped into a taxi and off to NBC and up to the eighth floor and up to the microphone, and the announcer read a perfect 
one-minute piece of copy, and she said, I always use Drune Champagne. <laughs> <laughs> that was Saturday night. Well, Sunday, she got a wire from the sponsor saying, we feel you've done this commercial too long. <laughs> Jason Grant's death made headlines for two days. His funeral made the bottom of page one, and then Grant was just about forgotten. For Wynn Thomas and Harry Tolan, charged with his murder, Grant was still an important part of their lives. He was also much in the thoughts of Denise, his widow, his son Tony, and in the report of Lieutenant Metcalf. Report from Lieutenant Metcalf, Homicide, 11th Precinct on the Murder of Jason Grant to the Office of the District Attorney. 1. An elaborate plot was hatched, then botched, and it will be our contention that Wynne Thomas went to Grant's office to finish it off. Although we can place him at the building at the time of the murder, we cannot put him inside the office. 2. We know the gun was there and the silencer. Why then did Thomas use towels from the men's room to muffle the shots? Three. Why didn't he follow his own plot and change clothes and take the toolbox with him as planned instead of leaving it for us to find? Four. If Thomas was the killer, why didn't he take the gun with him instead of leaving it for us to find? Five, ditto the tape recording, which Tolan admits having told Thomas was made earlier that afternoon. Who is it? Denise. Come in. Is it all right if I sit down? You can do anything you want. After all, you own me now. That's foolish. You put up my bail, didn't you? Yes. Why? I felt guilty. Guilty? About you. About the way I left you. Oh, if it's any consolation to you, Harry, I had about two months of happiness with Jason. The rest was all a bad trip. We were getting a divorce. Why didn't you get off? I... I guess I was ashamed to admit to myself or to anyone else that I'd made a mistake. Okay. And that's why you put up the bail bond money. Partly. And the other part? I know you, Harry. I lived with you. You're not a murderer. I went along with Wynn's idea. But you didn't kill Jason. And I couldn't bear the thought of you being in jail. What about Wynn? Well, I wasn't married to Wynn. Well, neither was I, but... but... I've done just as good or as bad a job on him as you did on me. I don't understand. I told you, I went along with the idea. Part of which was that we would alibi each other. I tried, but I messed it up. I, I, I let him down. Would you like me to post bail for him, too? Would that make you feel better, Harry? Yes, it would. Where's the phone? <laughs> Will you have a drink, Lieutenant? Uh, no, thanks. 
I thought you caught the man who committed the murder. I think we have. But you're not sure. Mrs. Grant told me that she and her husband were getting a divorce. Did you figure in that in any way? Well, yes, Jason and I were going to be married. Then you were on intimate terms with Jason Grant? Yes. A long time? Our relationship uh, started about a year ago. Then you'd know all about him. <laughs> no one knew all about Jason Grant. Let's not fence. The night of the murder, when did you leave? About nine o'clock. I've already told you that. Was Grant alone? No, Tony was with him. Did he know about your friendship with his father? I think he found out that night. He, um, he saw us embracing. And what was his reaction? <laughs> An honest answer. <laughs> They're usually the best kind. I think it was a combination of shock and jealousy. You see, Inspector, although Tony never made a pass, I knew he was as attracted to me. Uh-huh. Did he know his father intended to marry you? Not at that time. Jason was going to tell Tony that night. And did he? I have no idea. Why don't you ask Tony? I intend to. Now, you've told us that you came right home and never left the apartment. That's right. And when Grant never showed at your place, you went to sleep. Right again. Isn't that strange? I mean, you weren't concerned? You didn't know Jason, Lieutenant. He didn't like to be accountable to anyone for his actions. Uh And... Really, of all the people involved, I had the most to gain from Jason alive. Dead, I get nothing. Yes, I'm aware of that. But I've talked to the garage man in your building, and he tells me that a little after midnight, you took your car out and didn't bring it back until about two hours later. He told you that? Uh Uh-huh. Well, I believe all the papers said that Jason died around 11 o'clock. And if that's right, why, then he's... A darling for giving me a perfect alibi. Wouldn't you agree, Lieutenant? Why? Why? Why would she put up bail for me? I told you when, because I asked her to. Ah, I don't buy that. Well, you don't know her the way I do. And she doesn't know me. Nobody puts up that kind of money for, her, for for a stranger, no matter what she tells you. How does she know I won't skip? She took my word for it. I don't buy that either. All that talk about how she how she felt she had done you wrong and, and the guilt she said that she was... Of course. Why didn't I think of that before? That's it. What? Guilt. That's the key word. Guilt. She feels guilty because she killed Jason. Are you crazy? I'm just getting smart. She said Jason was divorcing her. Didn't didn't you tell me she said that? I said they were getting a divorce. Sure, sure. We both know Jason. If he divorced her, he was through with her. She'd never get a cent from him. He'd fix it with his attorney so that she spent the rest of her life chasing him for for, for alimony or a settlement. She couldn't face up to that, so she killed him. What are you doing? I'm calling Lieutenant Metcalf. Are you listening to me? You say you didn't kill Jason. I don't know who killed him if you didn't, but I know one thing for sure. Denise didn't. And I'm not going to let you throw her to the wolves to save your own skin. That's a noble speech, Harry. Particularly coming from a guy who threw me to the same wolves to save his own skin. You can't make me feel any worse about that than I do. That's one of the reasons she put up the bail. I told her how I felt about letting you down. Yeah? Yeah. Listen. She's got all the money in the world. She can hire great lawyers... They'll be sure to get her off. We can testify about what a louse Jason was. 
She's still attractive. She's got everything going for her. I don't her. care what you say. She didn't kill him. And you're not going to let me call Lieutenant Metcalf. That's right. Sorry, Harry. <laughs> Duffy, bring me the lab reports. Again, Lieutenant? You heard me. Coming up. Want some coffee with him? Oh, no, just the reports. Here they are. You know what you're looking for? Nope. The call from Wynn Thomas made a lot of sense. Mm, you think so? Well, she put up the bail. She had a motive. We got no one who'll swear she stayed home all that night. Yeah, we got no one who'll place her at the murder scene either. How about Wynn Thomas? Why don't you think he did it? I didn't say he didn't do it. It's just that there are a lot of loose ends. And I hate loose ends. Hey. You got something? Look here. From the coroner's report. Here, look. Death resulted from one bullet in the heart. Three other bullets were fired into the body all below the waist. Well, I don't see what... It could be, Duffy. It just could be. Who is that? Well, I know you think I'm a very smart girl, Tony, but I really can't see through doors. I send them away, Kay. You're uptight about being here, aren't you? Yeah, sure I am. Everybody knows about you and Oh, my... we're never going to have a relaxed relationship until you stop worrying about what people will think. Who is it? Lieutenant Metcalf. Don't let him in. Uh, well, it's late, Lieutenant, and unless... I it... think you'd better let me in, Miss Woodhouse. <sighs> that sounds ominous, Lieutenant. Evening, Mr. Grant. Evening. I uh, know you better than to offer you a drink, so uh, what can we do for you? A few answers. I, uh, I'm afraid I'm all out of answers. How about you, Mr. Grant? I'll do anything to help, uh, but we've been over everything uh, so often. There's been a new development. Oh? Mr. Grant, did you know your mother has posted bail for Wynne Thomas as well as Harry Tolan? No, uh, but... Can you think I... of any reason why your mother would do a thing like that? I haven't given it any thought. Your mother told Mr. Tolan she posted his bail because she felt badly about the way she treated him. That makes sense. She also spoke about guilt. What kind of guilt? That's the question. Thomas thinks it's connected with her not wanting to let an innocent man go to prison for a crime she committed. Thomas is a liar, and you're a fool for listening to him. What makes you so sure? Because I know my mother. Uh, she couldn't have killed Dad any more than... any more than, than she could kill a fly. She can't account for a time around 11 o'clock. She says she was at home. We can't place her there. Oh, yes, you can. I was, I was there with her. I was there with her the whole time. Now, that's a stupid lie, Mr. Grant, and I'm sure you only said it because you're so upset. Of course I'm upset. Why don't you forget about Mother and concentrate on nailing down the case against Thomas and Tolan? Although I can't see what else you need. I need to know why four bullets were fired when the first shot killed your father. The killer hated Dad. He just, he just kept firing and, and firing. We all know how much Thomas hated him and... And why? But the bullets were fired low. It all seemed very deliberate. Well, maybe it was. 
Maybe, maybe Thomas hated him so much... That, that he stopped in the men's room to get towels to muffle the sound of the shots when all along he knew there was a, was a silencer in the toolbox Tolan left behind? Maybe, maybe he didn't have time. It, 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 it takes time to fit a silencer onto a gun. Or maybe the killer was someone who saw the gun but didn't know about the silencer in the toolbox. Yeah, that's possible. Does your mother know you're seeing Miss Woodhouse? <laughs> I take it she doesn't. How do you think she'd feel about that, her son taking right up with the same woman his father... You do play a very dirty game of pool, don't you, Lieutenant? Murder is a very dirty game, Miss Woodhouse. Well, Tony, isn't the men's room locked? Does your mother have a key, or uh, do you, Miss Woodhouse? I think you'd better get out, Lieutenant. This is my apartment, and don't come back without a warrant. That can be arranged. What do you think your mother's going to say, Tony, when she finds out that you're in love with Miss Woodhouse, just as your dad was? You think she's going to feel she killed your father for nothing? She didn't do it. She didn't. You know she didn't do it. I just couldn't stand seeing him hurt her that way. And all for... Because he had a picture of himself as the great lover. The great, great lover. So I, I took care of him. I was glad to take care of him. The way he, he would have taken care of anyone like him. I'll be back shortly with a final thought. Of course, you remember the ad that said, Follow that man. Agent X-39, a man with a long midnight blue cape and a beautiful burgundy silk mane. Send your name and address to Box 42, Ocwanamanoc, Wisconsin, Big Shot Division. Follow that man. Carry a Malacca cane with an ivory head. <laughs> Small wonder I'm what I am today. Nothing. Operative X-39. Gene Shepard, tonight at 9.15 over WOR New York, your mystery theater station. John Wingate here. At 10 o'clock tonight, the Wingate News Digest. What does it bring you? Economic forecast for 1974. That's right. A top man will yeah. tell you what he thinks. He's also straight. If he believes he can't predict, he won't try to predict. In the stock brokerage business, that's unusual. Almost unheard of. That tonight on the Wingate News Digest. Also, you American consumers are getting a break from the companies you've been ripping off verbally. Big corporations, many of them, are setting up their own consumer affairs departments. Why? Because you say you get tired when you call and call and call for repairs and don't get it. A number of corporations setting up their own consumer affairs department. John Wingate, tonight, 10 o'clock, the Wingate News Digest. Tony Grant confessed and was sent to a mental institution. As for Wynn Thomas and Harry Tolan, they had their revenge and they found it empty. For a while, they kept on meeting every Friday night. But strangely, 
After a while, they found they had nothing to talk about and drifted apart. It was almost as if with Grant dead, their lives were now without purpose. Our cast included Paul Hecht, Tony Roberts, Joan Lovejoy, Mary Jane Higby, George Petrie, and Joseph Julian. The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brown. Now, a preview of our next tale. I'm just an old man. A very old man. Why? Well, I, I took it for granted. That... No, I know nothing. Only what I see, what I feel. Did I harm her? No, I even think she's a, a little better. Her eyes, they, they look brighter. Not so full of pain. Your hands are warm. On a night like this, more than warm. Hot. Very hot as though they were burning from inside. This is E.G. Marshall inviting you to return to our mystery theater for another adventure in the macabre. Until next time, pleasant dreams. Mystery Theater was brought to you by ShopRite Supermarkets, where you get a lot more for a little less, and by Suburban Savings, with offices throughout New Jersey. The preceding Mystery Theater program was furnished by the CBS Radio Network. And be sure to be with us tomorrow night at the same time, following the Fulton Lewis commentary, for another WOR Radio Mystery Theater, A Very Old Man. very bad? I don't know. She's very dear to me. If I should lose her... She's trying to raise her head. She knows I want to help her. Do you think you can? Young man, I never said I was a doctor. But I thought... I mean, the way I'm just an old man. A very old man. A Very Old Man, starring Santos Ortega with E.G. Marshall as your host. An elderly man with a supernatural curing power confounds his doctor's son-in-law. The old man's ability to diagnose ailments and to cure them with a strange warmness in his hands. Tomorrow night on the Mystery Theater. Good evening, everybody. This is Patricia McCann. Our guest tomorrow morning has lost 81 pounds the behavior modification way. Shirley Simon joins us at 11.15 a.m. to give you the specifics. She'll explain what the behavioral techniques are and how they could help you lose weight permanently. That's on the McCann program tomorrow morning at 11. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society 
a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not so classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcasts from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. And now, for our closing number, we will demonstrate how a cow outfit is brutally attacked on the Great Plains. You remember, the sound effects man used to be a member of AFTRA. He was a member of the Actors' Union. When Radio Drama went into a decline in 59, all the sound effects men became engineers. They belonged to the Engineering Union. As a sound man, he had to be an actor. He had to be able to follow the actor to the telephone pick the telephone up, follow him to the door, open the door, let the actor or actress walk through the door. All of this required tremendous talent and skill. We still have that. Cleveland Plain Dealer, July 28, 1974. CBS Theater's Brown burns about Serling. I'm proud of every minute we're on the air, and I'll stand up for every single show I do. Speaking of the CBS Radio Mystery Theater was Hyman Brown, executive producer of the nationwide show that premiered January 6th. It has garnered good ratings. His comments were the beginning of a rebuttal to negative remarks made about the show and the Zero Hour on these pages June 16th by Rod Serling. Serling narrated the latter program, which was dropped by Mutual last Friday. Brown burned. My stories have complete relevancy to all going on now. Exorcism, reincarnation... All stories of the moment. We're doing contemporary stories with the best writers and actors in the business. I think radio drama, contrary to what Serling says, is here forever and a day and will never be off the networks again. Serling has written TV shows, movies, and books, but his only previous radio drama was written while he was a summer replacement at WLW in Cincinnati. It's all sour grapes. Serling's relationship to radio has been a total failure, Brown said. His criticism of his own show is a complete slur of his own integrity, because in the past, he lent his narrative name or talents to what he wrote. The implication is that he was much involved with the stories on the Zero Hour, and that's a fake. Brown believes in mystery theater with all his heart. It took me 15 years to sell it, but it's been a happy fulfillment. The show has gone so well that Brown has a verbal renewal to go into a second year. He wouldn't discuss it, but Brown admitted that he has packaged a two-hour weekly Sunday drama series for CBS Radio that should debut early next year. Getting back to Mystery Theater, Brown admitted that he can't bat 1,000 on the series, but I'll bat 800. He produces, directs, edits scripts, casts the shows, and signs the checks. This show has gone far beyond anything I ever hoped for, 
People are listening seven nights a week. The minute we put on the first repeats, the station switchboards lit up. The first year's contract calls for 195 new shows and 170 repeats. Usually produced in New York, the program will invade Hollywood for talent there for the recording of eight mysteries, beginning August 5th. Born in Manhattan and with degrees from City College of New York and Brooklyn Law School, although he never actually practiced law, Brown moved into TV production when radio drama fell by the wayside some 15 years ago. Now, with the CBS Radio Mystery Theater, he's back home. It's the greatest homecoming a man could possibly want. Raymond P. Hart. One person, one individual sitting alone in his room with his radio now is a part of that show, is part of that performance because he with his imagination or she with her imagination builds the castle, makes the river and flies the ocean and so forth. You bring your imagination. You are a part of the performance in radio. Oh, I love it. Uh, they said, well, don't you have to re-gear and retool? I said, no, it's like swimming. You never forget how to do that. About six months ago, because I'd known High in the early days of radio, and uh, sometimes I'd go in his office, we'd talk about why, why, why did it all stop? It was so wonderful. People loved it, so why did it all stop? And then we'd give various reasons why television supplanted radio, and we'd say, well, why don't we just get together and do it? We'll find a station someplace, and we'll do it. We'll get a script. We must have scripts there, high. Say, yeah, we'll do it. But we could never get a station to provide the time for it, because it was so strictly structured. And we'd reminisce about it and have a coffee clutch, and say, well, someday, because they're not going to forget it forever, it'll have to come back, right? So gradually and finally it did come back, and now we're on the air every night in the week. Although Rod Serling was disappointed with Mutual Broadcasting's treatment of the Zero Hour, as covered in the previous episode of Breaking Walls. In 1974, Hyman Brown's Mystery Theater won a Peabody Award for helping to usher in a new era of radio entertainment. It would run for eight more years until finally going off the air on December 31, 1982. More than 1,500 episodes were produced. Most survive in listening quality. Well, that brings our look at the launch of the CBS Radio Mystery Theater to a close. We've spent the past five months making our way forward in time, from 1957 to 1963 to 1973, and finally 1974. But next month on Breaking Walls, we'll head back to the middle of radio's golden age and focus on one of the most successful comedians of all time. 30 years with the same network? 30 years? I'm on my 31st. No. Have you ever been with another network? I no. don't recall. You've no. never worked for any of the no. other major this networks? No, this is it. This is it. On radio, too? Always NBC? Radio? I was on radio for 12 years before that. Yeah. So I'm on my 43rd year. That's incredible. Started as a child. I remember. I sat there listening to you. Yeah. Oh, I meant that. When I, was, when I was growing up, not to make you sound like an elderly man, but I, I would tell you and Jack Benny and Fred Allen and Fibber McGee and Molly and all of those shows had a great effect sure, on people sure, of my generation. Sure. We stole from you all. Sure. A little, little bit here and there. Sure. Your first show was... Great, love, wonderful medium. I don't know why we ever got into this stuff, you know. <laughs> I love... No, I love radio at Sunset and Vine where we used to do it, read the jokes and kiss the script and walk out and drop the whole thing in the can and keep going right to the golf course. <laughs> now you have to go and have your head blocked, you know. Make up and all of that stuff. Shy, look you over. My God, it's murder. 
Next time on Breaking Walls, it's February of 1944, and between entertaining troops, smashing box office numbers, and notoriously carousing, the man jokingly referred to by friend Bing Crosby as Old Trowel Nose, Bob Hope, is radio's top comedian. For the first time in six years of Breaking Walls episodes, we'll focus a show on the man who always reminded us to say, thanks for the memories. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, the CBS Radio Mystery Theater, an episode guide and handbook to nine years of broadcasting by Gordon Payton and Martin Grahams Jr., as well as articles from the Cleveland Plain Dealer. On the interview front, Hyman Brown, Larry Haynes, Mary Jane Higby, Joseph Julian, and E.G. Marshall spoke with Dick Portell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear these full interviews at goldenage-wtic.org. Joan Banks and George Petrie were with Spurvac. For more info, go to spurvac.com. Mason Adams spoke with Chuck Shaden. Hear these chats at speakingofradio.com. Selected music featured in today's episode was January Stars by George Winston, Amid Flowers, Beside the River, Under a Spring Moon by Elizabeth Hainan, and Perfida by Jimmy Dorsey and his orchestra. Subscribe to Burning Gotham, the audio soap opera set in 1835 in New York City. It's available everywhere you get your podcasts and at burninggotham.com. Special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendigas, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon, go to pastdaily.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls episode 148 will take us back to 1944, where we'll spotlight Bob Hope's Pepsodent program and get comfortable as we'll be spending the rest of 2024 in this year. This episode will be available beginning February 1st, 2024, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups, slash the wallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash the wallbreakers. So until February 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 147, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.